It's June 29th. Happy Tuesday to you. Welcome to Real Talk. This episode of the show is presented by the team at Bitcoin Well, probably headquartered in Edmonton, Alberta. Bitcoin Well has Bitcoin ATMs across the country. They're going public this year. It's actually it's a big year for Bitcoin Well. New headquarters, a new building they're moving into. There's a lot going on. And then, of course, for crypto, the bigger picture. What an absolutely wild 2021. If you're trying to make sense of it all, you're, you're, you're seeing where things are trending. You're looking at the, the market and you're going, what, what does this all mean? And where is this going? The team to talk to, you'll find them right at the top of the sponsors page. It's Bitcoin Well at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. This is like the type of day, this is the type of week where the the person that always makes the dad jokes in your circle is going to walk into the room and say, hot enough for you. It doesn't matter. We know that people will uh, interact with Real Talk uh, across this great country. We know that we have our friends in the United States, and as a matter of fact, our our, our web insights tell us that, that uh, you know, some weeks we have people from more than 60 countries around the world checking in on Real Talk. And it feels like no matter where the audience member is from, they can relate today. It's like this is like a global thing going on right now, especially across the country. In Canada, I was talking to a couple friends on the West Coast yesterday on Zoom. 48 degrees in a couple of lower mainland communities. Like Roasting. Blasting records. But not in a great way. Once you're at 48. It's a little uncomfortable. I was talking to my sister-in-law, Lindsay, and uh, she was saying they took their, their uh, beautiful young boys, Bo and Jove, they took him to the mall yesterday in Vancouver. And I said, I said, the mall? Because the, Lindsay's like, it's hilarious. They're always, Lindsay, her Instagram always makes me feel like I should be doing more. Mm. She's, she's always like, we're doing this craft, we're at this activity, we're doing these amazing things. And I, and I was like, so what was it, would you say, that drew you to the mall? She goes, oh, 100%, the air conditioning. AC. There are people, there are, there are flocks of people that are doing what they can to find different air conditioning solutions, uh, no, matter, no matter where they are. It's uh, absolutely wild stuff. Today's show is going to be a good one and we're going to cover a lot of ground a lot of subject matter in just a few moments um, Fatima Syed will join us a journalist who uh, wrote a really powerful piece in Chatelaine as a matter of fact it caught our eye and uh, her perspective an interesting one on this she, she writes and the headline reads as a Muslim I face Islamophobia as an immigrant I failed indigenous people and uh, she, she writes how the confluence of the Kamloops discovery and that horrific attack in London, Ontario, have made her question what it means to be a good ally while you're also suffering. What an amazing opportunity uh, to hear from Fatima Syed coming up in just a few minutes, a, a little bit later in the show, like 25, maybe 30 minutes from now. I've been looking forward to interviewing this guy for years, <laughs> for years did you, were you, like, before, when we just started floating this idea, no pun intended, uh, wow. and I said, I said, Sea Shepherd founder, I don't remember what it was that prompted me to think of him, but it wasn't, you know, here's the thing about Real Talk, and, and producer Sarah Hoyles, how we, how we sort of work to put these shows together and get things that people talk about, the things that people care about. We don't just, we're not like, uh, like on the heels of the news cycle, like picking up the scraps of what the newspapers cover and say like, what's, what's, what's the newspapers talking about every day? Then we'll do that the next day on our, no, we want to just like cool things, interesting people. And something in my brain, I just, one day I was like, 
Captain Paul Watson. Like, yeah. Like, this guy is like, I feel like if there was a room of shit disturbers, they would all be saying, that guy's a shit disturber. Uh, the founder of Sea Shepherd, he's, uh, he's a Canadian guy, um, he, or he founded it, uh, Sea Shepherd in 1977 in Vancouver, and they've basically, I mean, I, I'm going to oversimplify here, and Watson can take us into it, but they basically head out on, or they do, they do a ton of different things now, but they like head out on open waters and basically go head-to-head against whaling ships. Yeah, and ramming them. They like ram whaling ships, and they and 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 you know we're going to get a couple of people, uh, you know, like similar to the folks. Although I shouldn't compare the scenarios, but I will. Uh, <laughs> but people, you know, people that are like this this uh, Catholic Church, this this prominent one in Saskatoon that was people say, you know, there was graffiti on it, mm. and people will choose their language. Some people say, well, it was it was vandalized. That's vandalism, and technically it was. <clears throat> and it was also, you know, people are saying it's graffiti and people are saying graffiti's art. And that's also true. And it's powerful, which is also true. Mm. And, and there's many things we could, I mean, maybe we will today. Maybe we should talk about that Saskatoon church. We have to talk about churches, uh, in particular Catholic churches that are being burned to the ground across Canada. It demands a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there has to be, I think, in some cases, like full stop, no nuance, black and white elements to that conversation. Like uh, arson is never okay. And, and then at the same time, I'm going to hear from people that are going to say, I don't blame people for burning down those churches right now. And um, I'm, I'm happy to have those conversations. I will continue to be the fuddy-duddy at times because of our platform and liabilities and, and I think public responsibilities to remind people that it's not cool. Arson's not cool. Um, I will say with regards to the paint on that the the uh i'm probably it's probably is it like a diocese or what was it it's more than just a church it's like a big i saw someone saying to me uh in in saskatoon this church they're saying it's more than just like a church they're saying this one is you know kind of like it's the same with synagogues or other houses of worship or sometimes it's like your neighborhood house of worship and then sometimes it's like the big one downtown right with all the architectural heritage and the the art inside and they do the tours and it's where you know prominent people get married or whatever the case may be so there's paint on it and it says we were children and the, all these little red i feel like if i'm describing it here even if you're listening to the podcast you know the one i'm talking about everybody knows the image if you don't know what i'm talking about you can scroll through my twitter profile of the last few days and some people started saying oh so now vandalism's okay so oh so now you're okay with vandalism oh so so now anybody can just vandalize and i'm sitting there kind of going well first of all do you understand the context here? Yeah. Because if you're getting, I'm, can I still say in 2021, if you're still getting your, no, I probably can't say it. I'm panties and a nut? No, I'm going to say panties and a nut? I course corrected, and I'm going with, if you're getting your undies in a knot over vandalism. Could you say gaunch in gaunt, a knot? Gaunch in a knot actually really sounds like a, that's gaunch in a knot sounds like a, like a, something you buy at like Jimmy Buffett's <laughs> cheeseburger stand. I don't even know what that means or what it would be, but he would probably Delicious. sell Gonch in a Knot. It would be like, it would be, uh, Gonch in a Knot would be like the bulldog, you know, where they have the big, huge fishbowl margarita and then they dump the upside down Corona bottle into it. Yeah. And it's basically, it's like, so, so what's the bulldog for? The bulldog is for someone that just needs to get wasted right now. Immediately. They need to get wasted Immediately, their conch is in a knot. <laughs> Post haste, they just saw some vandalism, yes. and their conch is in a knot. 
Fire up the margarita machine. Uh, people are going to go, this show is fucked. The way that they make light of serious things. We're not making light of it at all. We, la- uh, we laugh so we don't cry. Mm. Um, so the vandalism that people were upset about. But seriously, arson's not cool. And there's a lot of stuff going on. And we will talk about it. And I'll get a bit more serious in a minute. But this brings me back to Captain Paul Watson. You'd, you'd, you might sort of say, like, he's an activist, and this is civil disobedience, people might say. And then others would say, like, he's out there ramming whaling vessels that are out there legally whaling, and what the hell, man? And then he's probably going to say, uh, I have a bit of a higher calling. I don't know. All I know is that this guy is a no BS. I've never talked to him before in my life. I've only seen him on camera, and I've seen him many times, and I cannot wait. Yeah, you were like... Who the like dream interviews? Yeah, you we were, were name ta- you were naming off a couple dream interviews, and and then you told me you got him, and I was like, Hoyles, <laughs> I'm doing my job. I'm Hoyles, doing my job. you did it again. <laughs> oh, and then by the way, an hour and twenty minutes from now, we'll also talk to Brent Butt. <laughs> Samuel Brooks is very excited about this interview. Super fan. You have kind of like a. You have, you have, you, it seems, it strikes me as though you have a, a bit of a connection with Corner Gas and, and with Brent Butt in particular. Like, I, I thought it might be a little pandering and unprofessional to wear my Corner Gas shirt on air today, no, but I would have uh, supported that. I, uh, Brent, like, Corner Gas has been part of my life since junior high. It's just, it's, it's wholesome, fun Canadiana. I've always loved Brent Butt's style. I, you know, as, as a person that works in media, I actually have crazy respect for someone that was able to, like, literally create one of the most successful Canadian. TV franchises in history, which is very hard to do in this country. I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, rarely does something born out of Canada go on to what was it about, corner gas fame. What was it about corner gas that, that connected with you and that you think, and I'm just, I'm going to take, let's ask him, let's put him on the spot and, and get a little bit tacky and ask him about like numbers and revenues and earnings and, and all those types <laughs> of things. And because I'd love to know if, if corner gas, it, it anecdotally, absolutely is one of the most successful and well-known Canadian comedies of all time, for sure. But if I were to say right now, how does it stack up against SCTV or or Trailer Park Boys or some of the others? What's um, the one that sure Dan I'd Levy know. and... Like, like Shit's Creek. Creek is Shit's like... Creek. But Shit's Creek is kind of like... In, uh, the, no, but the, okay, hang on. This is only my opinion. This Again, I don't have the numbers. This is why numbers... But I mean, look at their Emmys. Like, yeah, like the like, Emmy it's count ridiculous. But I was going to say, they're bonkers. like the Wayne Gretzky. Where everybody talks about points all time in the NHL, and it's yeah. like you compare Wayne Gretzky's assists are more than anybody else's points. And I feel like Schitt's Creek is the Wayne Gretzky of Canadian, you know. In I a mean, way. up until a couple of years ago, I would say that, yeah, absolutely, some of the other shows you mentioned, but now I feel like Schitt's Creek is. Well, the Emmys really, I mean, and the buzz, and I'm just, I'm, you know what I'm realizing about this shirt? As we speak, this is one of the things. Typically, like if we were just doing a podcast, it wouldn't matter. But but we're on camera, and and uh, this is a shirt that I'm realizing that the top, the sort of like the crack. It's like not a golf shirt, everybody, but it's like what would you call it? Like a summer polo shirt. Yeah. But the second button's too high. But the third button's way too low. Too low. I'm like, hey, Angela, coming up on today's show. You know, who's Angela? Oh, you you get the- yeah. Who's the boss? Got it. Okay, out of girl. Yeah. Woo. But my name is Sarah, just so you're aware. Oh, jealousy <laughs> jealousy rears its ugly head. <laughs> the team at Eden Landscaping, their crews, can you imagine working for Eden Landscaping right now? It's like 37 Ooh. degrees. They're waking like, up really early probably and getting like 
getting in as much work as possible as early as possible. Which the, which the neighbors are just loving. loving. What's up today? Jack hammering out the old concrete pad. But don't worry. Uh, you know, yeah, if I was working for Mike and the team at Eden Landscaping, I don't know, a, a day like today, maybe maybe you wear like one of the the old, uh, like the, the, sun, the sombrero or the sun hat or something that can like protect you out there. Stay safe out there, everybody. Mike and his team, he's got multiple crews going right now because they spent the winter and the spring designing all ever, you know, I mean, these sort of like game changing yardscapes, front and back curb appeal. That's their game has been for more than 20 years. Mike's a problem solver. He literally told me to tell you that they are landscaping problem solvers. You can find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. Also wanted to remind you that the team at Alta Moving and Storage knows that these days are the days that families finally make their move. Nobody wants to move in the middle of January. If your summer involves a move and you're looking to take all the stress out of the mix, check them out online at altastorage.ca. You'll see more there about their pod-style moving containers. Check these out right now. If you're watching us on YouTube, I'm showing you them. These things they drop them off in front of your house at your convenience. You fill them, they move them, you unpack them at your convenience. You keep the stress out of the mix. Plus, you support local family-owned business at altastorage.ca. This was a piece that uh, stopped me in my tracks. Uh, I've, I've been following uh, Fatima Syed for quite some time on Twitter. Really appreciate the work. Uh, that Fatima does as, as a journalist, this piece, this, this was a whole other level. You can read it at Chatelaine.com. As a Muslim, I face Islamophobia. As an immigrant, I failed indigenous people. Journalist uh, Fatima Syed, kind enough to join us this morning. Welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's nice to be here. This is uh, a really, I mean, even just you set the scene here. I mean, you do, you, you've always done a great job storytelling, but in this piece for Shadlane, you set the scene. You're there. I mean, I suppose, of course, as a journalist, as an observer, as a storyteller, um, you're also there as an immigrant. Uh, you're mm-hmm. also there as someone who is, who is feeling a horrific loss, uh, an entire community reeling. This was a personal exercise for you. Yeah, it was hard to separate the personal and professional when you're attending a vigil like that, that hits so close to your home and your community and, and your family. Um, you know, the the family, the Elzel family that was killed in, in the London attack just a few weeks ago, they were my family. Um, you know, they were separated by me and mine by a stone because uh, immigrant circles are, are very small. So very quickly in the hours after we learned of their deaths, uh, we knew people who knew them and we knew them and suddenly like my parents knew them. So it was hard to separate the personal and professional uh, when you attend a vigil like that as a journalist. And my eyes just kept being drawn to this bright blue flag in the sky that had a white infinity symbol. And I could not tell you then what that flag represented. And I did not know why it was there and what it meant. And I had to Google it. Um, And it was interesting because there were so many people at the vigil, the internet was slow. So I had to wait a second to to get the response. And immediately as, as the result came, my heart sank because I felt so guilty and so ashamed and just completely devastated that I did not know that that flag represented the Métis Nation and that it was present at a vigil um, that was mourning and, uh, you know, celebrating at the same time the lives of, of these four Muslim Canadians. Um, and, and that 
emotion is something I wanted to work through. So I sort of wrote it as a personal exercise and it's been very humbling and overwhelming to, to see how it's resonated in, in the days since it's been published. I, I feel like you and I can have uh, literal, uh, we can have conversations about literal matters here and then we, we could yes. also get somewhat <laughs> esoteric because as, as you're talking, um, I'm thinking about flags. I'm thinking about the fact that this individual who we'll hear about in just a second, I want to ask you about your interaction with them, the person flying this flag. Um, but, but that person brought that flag there to send a message because flags send messages. When we mourn, when we grieve, we drop them to half staff. When we fly them proudly, we say something. When we bring them down, we say something. Um, there, there's a lot to be said about the power of flags, What's interesting, when you think about the funeral that happened a few days later after that vigil and the the bodies of the four members who were killed were covered with the Canadian flag. And I, I again, like this is how my brain works, so I couldn't help but link the two moments together um, because not only do flags represent nationhood, they represent feelings, right? How do we identify to a community? You know, it's, it's our sort of, you know, um, our identity expressed through this piece of cloth. And it's it was so powerful to see the Métis flag at this vigil, and then so powerful to see those bodies covered, draped in the Canadian flag. Um, and then also powerful to see other flags at at the vigil, you know, whether it was the Pakistani flag or the Palestinian flag, there was just, or, or just a flags that had anti-hate messaging waving on them. Um, it, it was truly, you know, a very visual representation of Canada. And, and the worst part is I, no one, I don't think many in the crowd knew that that the tallest flag at the vigil was the flag of the Métis nation. Hmm. So you walk over to this individual, <laughs> you want to, you want to pick their brain, right? I, my visceral reaction was that I must talk to him. I must understand why he's here. Call it a journalistic instinct or call it just, you know, human curiosity. I felt compelled to go and speak to this person. And when I walked up to him, you know, he was wearing jeans and a, and a white t-shirt and, and there was a beautiful woven belt uh, wrapped around his body and he was grasping onto this white pole with both his hands and just waving the flag. He wasn't saying anything, cheering, talking, nothing. That's all he was doing. He was just waving the flag. And and I remember going up to him saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist and um, I just wanted to ask, why are you here? And he sort of paused and looked at me and said, uh, you know, I'm here because the Métis Nation stands in solidarity with our Muslim brothers and sisters and stands against the hateful act that killed them. And that was it. And that's all he wanted to say. He didn't want to say anything more than that. How did that and hit I remember, you? I mean, how did that, like when he said that? Oh, a ton of bricks. I just, my eyes welled up. It, it was the most powerful line I'd heard. And, you know, I'd been watching this vigil and it was one politician after the other. And it was just this one line that completely crushed me. Um, especially knowing that Kamloops had just uh, been uncovered, you know, just a few days prior and that, you know, they were also in mourning and he somehow had found the strength to be here to also be mourning uh, the loss of another community. It, all levels of it just broke me. And, and I remember walking away just trying not to like pull my eyes out and a woman stopped me saying, who is he? What's the flag he's carrying? And I told her and she 
she she immediately like I could tell she was crushed too mm. um you can just you know when you see the emotion just on someone's face and yeah. it, her her face just dropped and uh I I saw her interacting with him afterwards and and giving her gratitude for him being there it was just one of those moments I'm not going to forget for a very very long time uh you and your family uh you moved to Canada from Pakistan what about 10 years ago is that right yeah so yeah. you you were relatively young when you moved to Canada do you <laughs> do you have a do you have a pretty vivid memory of of what was involved with, with regards to if I can call it getting up to speed on what you need to know I guess what I'm asking in a more pointed fashion is with, with regards to Canada's history things like residential schools and the like you'll hear from we are all hearing from millions of Canadians saying um, I, I went through the school system here like K to 12 post-secondary don't really remember hearing a lot about this especially nothing uh, at a meaningful depth what was your experience like as as an, a, a new Canadian you're given this book when you arrive. It's called Discover Canada. It's like it's like this small. It's very very thin, and uh, it's sort of meant to be an overview of Canada's history, Canada's laws, um, Canada's famous people. Like you know, giving you an introduction into this country, and that's the book that you're tested on before you get um, citizenship. And I remember my mom just constantly reading it every single day to memorize it, right? Because she wanted to pass this test. And so I remember us reading it and quizzing her on it. And uh, Ryan, there's no mention of residential schools in it. There's no mention of, of ind deep indigenous history or culture in it. There's no mention of a single indigenous famous person or a single uh, indigenous uh, member of this land in that book. There's barely two pages of indigenous uh you know, of, of, of things about Indigenous peoples in this book. And it just basically describes uh, three different communities, the fact that they exist, the fact that, you know, they're a part of our history, and that's it. And, and you know, a part of me gets it. A part of me gets it. Like, when you want to attract people to, to live in your land, you don't want to exactly air your dirty laundry or your, you know, evil actions of past. But at the same time, there was no land acknowledgement at our citizenship ceremony like there was no interaction and we could have spent our whole lives in this country and never met an indigenous person um if i wasn't a journalist or if we didn't you know or if i wasn't curious about all of this and and you know told my family about everything that was going on um so it's very jarring to think about that we have millions of immigrants in this country who've never ever met an indigenous person person or interacted with them in any way or read about them or know their history or anything like that and they're just just now waking up to all of this hmm. you uh you, you write about how you feel like i mean you you write about the uh, i'm trying to figure out how to ask a question i could just ask it very simply so maybe i'll just do that <laughs> let's pretend like we're just out for coffees and i'm just going <laughs> to ask you this like not worried about what the internet's going to say but but people could say to to immigrant canadians um no one's really going to hold you accountable or responsible for the indigenous experience in canada you've got your own struggles you've got your own issues you've got racism that you deal with you've got class structures that you deal with you've got many barriers that people that were born and raised in suburban south calgary like me uh could never possibly relate to or or, or fully understand the onus is not on you to carry the weight on your shoulders about all of this yet you write in your piece that that's kind of exactly how you're feeling right now. 
you, you kind of write that you feel like, if I can remember, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but essentially that, uh, and correct me on the wording, but immigrants are almost sort of part of the problem in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think they are because we because we're bounded together by these negative experiences. You know, I write in the piece about how in the wake of the London Vigil and Kamloops, I realized that the ties that bind us together are rooted in hate. And that means that we know what it feels like to be displaced, to be erased, to suffer violence and hate, to be made, uh, to feel like uh, we're, we don't belong or, or that we're the other people, right? We, we know what that feels like. That means that we have a responsibility that we haven't fulfilled in this country. That means that we have a responsibility to not just stand in solidarity, but to put indigenous issues into our own issues as well. So when we're voting, we're not just voting with immigrant issues in mind, we're voting with indigenous issues in mind as well because we understand that or or at least we should and I think there's been this enormous empathy gap between the two communities because we've actively actively been kept away from each other because of the lack of education because of the lack of interaction because of the ways the citizenship guide has been created and I think now after everything that we've learned in just the past month we're working on filling that gap it's been very encouraging to see immigrant communities plan some of the solidarity marches and, and, you know, reach out to immigrant organizations saying, how can we help? I know people who are looking to donate to causes and, and, you know, transfer the donations collected at mosques to indigenous communities, for example. All of that work is just starting and that's really encouraging, but there's so much more that needs to be done. So I feel incredibly guilty and I'm, I'm using that guilt to turn it into positive action because uh, I think that's what this moment requires. And I hope immigrant communities are up for that challenge because like I said, we know what this feels like and we've been, we've been ignorant for way too long. And we um, we're accusing, we're basically in the same place that we accuse, uh, forgive my, my language, we accuse white people of. That you know, we say that. Well, white I thought you were going to say something way, way harsher than that. <laughs> I thought you were going to be way more unfair than that. I was going to say, well, we accuse white people for being ignorant and racist, right? Well, we've been ignorant, and and I would, I don't, I wouldn't say we've been racist, but we haven't come to terms with the fact that our neighbors are indigenous peoples, and and now we have to fix that and we have to be better. And I, and you know, this essay was me working through those feelings and I agree with you. It's not my responsibility necessarily, but if I don't say anything and and if immigrants don't say anything, then we become part of the problem. We, uh, in Alberta right now, I mean, there's this this absolutely horrific attack in London, Ontario, obviously, but in Alberta, um, in particular in the Metro Edmonton region, um, over the past number of months, there have been several incidents of uh, mm-hmm. Muslim Canadians, in particular uh, women in hijab, um, subjected to attacks, including in a parking lot outside of a mall the other day in a city just north of Edmonton, St. Albert. Um, a report that women were uh, uh, essentially one woman pinned down by a knife-wielding assailant. Um, and then Edmonton police confirming that they're investigating report, reports, uh, not reports, I mean, it happened, um, shots fired from a vehicle uh, at a woman as well, a Muslim woman as well. I mean, these, you know, I mean, these stories are, I suppose, 
you, you could write them off or, or find some convenient way to dismiss them as there are hate mongers among us. And, um, you know, he, you know, hatred has, has driven horrific events through human history and there's nothing different now. And, you know, we must stand and, and all the things. But, in, you know, th- th- this is a, a specific, identifiable community repeatedly being targeted uh, in a violent manner uh, by multiple. I mean, these are different people, uh, you know, suspected or arrested facing charges in these attacks in some cases. Um, how are you wrapping your mind around this? Oh, I'm so scared for the women in Alberta and just, you know, women across this country who are wearing hijabs. Uh, It's funny, a friend of mine shared a story that on the day that um, the woman who uh, had shots fired at her um, when when that happened, she sort of, you know, left her place of work and saw a man praying in a park. And, uh, you know, for a second, she was really happy to see him praying in the park. And then the next second, she became extremely fearful. She said, should I be protecting him? Like, is someone going to come and attack him now? Um, And I, it's incredibly, it's an incredibly traumatic time right now, an incredibly emotional time for Muslims and Indigenous peoples alike, because there's this deep-seated fear um, that keeps growing and that isn't dissipating and it's not being removed by anyone. You know, what happened to the Avzal family in London was deeply traumatic for all of us because they were killed while they were out for a walk. And what's happening to the, the con- confirmation of the, the horrific actions done against Indigenous peoples is also opening a wound that has never healed. For indigenous peoples and and the only thing i can say is that we're you know i think we're screaming that this is not canada a lot of people are pushing back like you know uh cancel canada day because we need to figure this out or you know we are better than that this is all in the past but it's not in the past and and that's what's scary to me i don't know what canada is right now i know the horrors that I'm reading about and that I'm experiencing um, either personally or through community. I know all the bad things we're doing. Uh, I know where we failed uh, a lot, but I don't know how to connect that to this country's identity other mm. to other than to say that we have a lot to work on yeah and and you can say that i'm an immigrant you know who's only been here for 10 years i wasn't born and raised i haven't even seen enough of the country um to to have a footing in it perhaps but this is home i think it's, it's i think the longest i've ever lived here <laughs> I, I i think i think immigrants probably have a, a better uh, understanding of 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 the value of traveling across and seeing and experiencing Canada, Utah. We, you know, we we joke all the time, me and my friends, about how some of our buddies have never left the town that they grew up in. Like, a, it's like a big trip for them to head to the big city to hit the Costco. Like, I I I, I would imagine like there's a certain several friends of mine that that immigrant their families uh, moved to Canada and and they actually wound up sort of in the Maritimes to start and they've made their way across the country and could tell you more about. Um, I mean, I, why am I? I'm forgetting Gurdeep's last name. I feel terrible. Our Bangra dancer out of, out of the Yukon. I mean, just this amazing guy. I mean, he's a classic example. He, this guy's lived all the all, all across Canada, across Western Canada, inspiring people. Just amazing stuff. There's that. There's a wonderful and rich perspective that comes, I think, with the immigrant experience in in Canada. And I, I'm really grateful that you put this uh, on paper. Yeah, Gurdeep Pandur joined us a while back. Uh, that that you put this down in Chatelaine and, and let all of us wrestle with it. 
may I ask you a personal question uh, about Please. about Thursday? Um, <laughs> uh, how uh, you, you discussed canceling Canada Day. We've done some audience polling. Um, we've got some interesting data that we've been looking at. We made it our question of the week. We went through it. Hundreds of people answered it. We went through it yesterday. Um, about half of, our, half of our audience, like I think it was 48% or something, said they don't feel awkward um, celebrating Canada Day. Um, but another significant portion as well, I think it was over 30%, said that they're not celebrating and they may not ever again. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, there's diversity in our audience, which I think is wonderful. Wonderful, very healthy and um, uh, you know I'm curious to know where, where you land on it um so when you become a citizen you you're given this uh, Canada flag pin and, and every Canada day my mom takes it out and puts it on and, and we all wear it you know it's you when you move uh, to a country and you make it your home you you identify with that land and and you know I can get into a major history lesson of how that you know is how land is so special to Pakistani specifically, because, you know, we fought for, for, for a land to make that into a country. And then, you know, since then, a lot of us have immigrated and found new lands to make home and, and all of that. So there is a visceral connection to land that we celebrate um, with joy and, and much love. Um, but we're not, I'm not celebrating Canada Day this year. I'm not putting on that flag pen this year. I'm, I'm not doing it. And, and I think the reason is because it's not indicative that I don't love this country. It's, you know, it's because I love this country that I'm not celebrating it because this moment doesn't necessarily require love. I'm not proud of what Canada is today. And I think that's okay for me to say because we have learned new things about this country. Um, we're watching our history rightfully being torn to sh shreds. And I don't think that deserves a celebration. I think that that's a moment of introspection. It's a, it's a moment of reflection and and frankly there's a lot to mourn and it doesn't feel right to celebrate when there's so much to mourn and I think that's okay you can love a country but you can also not celebrate it mm. because we've realized that the very founding of Canada was done on genocide and how do you celebrate that Ryan like how how do you celebrate that uh, if anything, you have to grapple with that. So, so this Canada Day, um, as a proud Canadian, I'm not going to celebrate this country, but I am going to learn more about it. I'm, and, and that's what I encourage everyone to do. If you love this country, spend that day learning about it. Spend that day donating to Indigenous communities. Spend that day standing in solidarity with them at the various marches that are being organized. And that's okay, because that is also Canada. We're standing together and figuring out our history together this year. And, and, and maybe next year, that'll be what we celebrate, that we got through this really, really difficult moment together. I like that you say that you qualify that you say as a proud Canadian, uh, which I think is important. I think it's it, it, no, it really is important because it, it's it's uh, for, for a ton of reasons that I won't get into. Um, is Watson ready to rock or not? We're good to go. OK, I, I, I want to make this our last question. We got a guy on standby here and, and this show's moving fast, but I'm so grateful for your time. I want to ask you very quickly. Um, I mean, you're you're vice president, by the way, of the Canadian Association of Journalists. Kind of a big deal. Um, community <laughs> manager as well. Um, and the CAJ has been really uh, pushing its members and being proactive um, to to 
to observe ethics in journalism, mm-hmm. to get up to speed on uh, principles and practices, best practices and trauma based reporting uh, when it comes to covering these stories of these unmarked grave sites, residential schools and the bigger picture of truth and reconciliation uh, in Canada. I'd be curious just for your insight in closing. Um, obviously, journalists have an impl- play an important role in any free society. Uh, how important is it right now for Canada's journalists to, to step up and, and in some circumstances to rethink the entire way they operate? Oh, it's so important. I think we're we're still uh, we still haven't met any of the calls to action for media and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and and the CAJ is is reaffirming our commitment to it and is promising to help any newsroom that needs help uh, with that. But uh, it's also encouraging to see more and more Indigenous journalists in the country, and I and I encourage everyone to to follow them because they're doing an incredible job. Uh, doing the reporting of these times, but there's so much work to do. We're still making mistakes. We're still not doing trauma-informed reporting. And, and as is the case with a lot of you know coverage of issues of diversity and issues of BIPOC communities, our newsrooms are still playing catch up. Um, from journalism schools to like the major newsrooms of uh, major publications, um, we need to figure out how to better tell these narratives. So when this happens, it's not a surprise, right? Right? You know, the other day someone shared the fact that it was, you know, years ago, like almost 15 years ago, when the Globe and Mail had a story about about the existence of mass graves at these residential schools. It has been reported. We just haven't done a good enough job keeping the spotlight, bringing the nuance, and educating the public about this uh, these issues. So the work still needs to be done, and, and, and I hope that everyone's committed to doing it. I was looking forward to this conversation. I had high expectations, and you shattered even those. Uh, Fatima Syed, a, a journalist uh, based out of Mississauga. You've read her work probably in the Toronto Star, National Observer, The Logic. This piece you'll find at Chatelaine.com. As a Muslim, I face Islamophobia as an immigrant. I have failed indigenous people. Remarkable stuff. Thanks for making time for us. I'm looking forward to your return here on the show. You've been very kind, Ryan. Thanks so much. Take care, my friend. Thank you very much. Uh, The show is made possible by the team at Westworld Computers that powers this studio. Uh, They have since day one. We went and saw Daryl before we launched, and uh, I trusted him. Because quite frankly, uh, we bought IMAX uh, for our family uh, 25 years ago. I mean, when I was heading out to university, way back in the day, I had the orange one. My parents had the purple one. Westworld's been doing this, getting people set up with the gear they need to do the jobs they're doing for more than 40 years. Family-owned, going up against the big box store, the Apple store. Why not go to the family-owned business that continues to place their customer service as their number one priority? If you buy new gear, they transfer over all your data from your old unit for free. It's all part of the Westworld customer experience. They'll ship anywhere in Canada, by the way, via Westworld. Also, a big shout out to the team at Kubi Energy. We got a couple of wonderful submissions for positive reflections yesterday to talk at ryanjesperson.com. That's coming up again next Monday, presented by Kubi. Jake wanted us to remind you that while they are completing solar projects across Western Canada right now, they've got a ton of crews going at it out of their Kamloops and Edmonton offices. 
That means that they're always hiring. He said, Jespo, let everybody know if they're electrical apprentices or certified electricians. We're always taking resumes. We're virtually always hiring. You can find them online at kubienergy.ca. And remember, the Kubi team can give you the details on how you can save up to $9,000 right now on a residential solar install in Canada. Details at kubienergy.ca. I don't know what to say about our next guest, other than he, he he's he's a damn legend. Uh, you may have seen his ship, his team in action on various TV shows over the past number of years. Sea Shepherd uses direct action to defend marine life on the high seas. It was founded in 1977 in Vancouver, Canada, by our guest, Captain Paul Watson. Welcome to Real Talk. Thrilled to have you here, Captain. Oh, thank you. What, where did this all get started? Sea Shepherd, I want to get into some of the drama and, I mean, some of just these, these brazen actions that you and others have taken in the name of, of, of fulfilling your mandate, your mantra. But, but where did this all begin? You as a young man, where did your passion for protecting the planet come from? Well, I was raised in a fishing village in eastern Canada in New Brunswick, and uh, I spent, when I was 10 years old, I spent the summer swimming with a family of beavers. And uh, the next summer, when I went back, couldn't find the beavers, found out trappers had taken them. That made me quite angry. So uh, when I was 11, I would uh, walk the trap lines, freeing the animals and destroying the traps. And I guess I've been doing that for the last 60 years. <laughs> was it, was it, did, did you think at the time when you're a young boy, 11 years old, did you understand direct action or civil disobedience? Did, was this part of a bigger picture perspective that you were aware of at the time? No, I just did what I felt was right at the time, you know, to save lives. And then when I was um, 18, I was the uh, youngest founding member of the Greenpeace Foundation. Uh, and then I left Greenpeace in 1977 to establish Sea Shepherd because I didn't really like protesting. I wanted to intervene. So Sea Shepherd was set up as a, an interventionist uh, organization to intervene against illegal activities. And uh, I also developed this uh, strategy, which I call aggressive nonviolence, which we're going to be aggressive. We're not going to hurt anybody. And in uh, 60 years or 50 years, we've not uh, injured anybody. And uh, we've not had lost anybody, but we have shut down hundreds and hundreds of illegal activities around the world. But you've you've actively to state the obvious, Captain, anybody that's watched even five minutes of anything that you've done knows that you have put yourself in harm's way uh, many times. I mean, you've put yourself in a position where you could. I mean, people have shot at you before uh, for Pete's sake. I mean, it, it, you got to be wired a little bit differently to, to, to approach activism like this. Well, you know, we don't have any problems with people risking their lives uh, to protect real estate, oil, wells, flags, and religions. So I think it's a, a far more noble uh, endeavor to risk your life to protect an endangered species or a threatened habitat. What was it back in 1977 when you were, because that would have been like right around the time, I mean, Greenpeace was just becoming a thing. It was just starting to sort of make a name for itself. Obviously, I would imagine tapping into a bunch of different grassroots movements and you've got a bunch of people coming together and realizing the, the, the power that comes with a collective or focused effort. What was it that, that prompted you to see a, a need for a separate entity with Sea Shepherd? Why did you leave Greenpeace? Well, I think I got just tired of hanging banners and taking pictures and not being able to stop the thing that we were opposing. So I wanted to see results. But I did learn a lot from Greenpeace. I mean, Greenpeace was established by journalists, by broadcasters, and uh, we, who understood the, um, the power of the media, understood how to use the media. Uh, you know, we were all uh, disciples of Marshall McLuhan at, at, at the time. And so I've always felt that the most powerful weapon in the world is a camera. So that's why with Sea Shepherd, 
uh, we document everything, both for defensive purposes and also for education, offensive purposes, I guess. But uh, so I, I just feel that I had a need to actually change things, not just to protest them. So you, you've adopted this, uh, let's call it a pirate-esque flag. Uh, when you're flying that flag, what message does it send? Take us into the design. Well, in the 90s, our opponents would call us pirates. So I said, well, you know, I was a student of Aikido. So I said, well, if you're going to call us pirates, we'll be pirates for you. And uh, we, I set up that flag. The, the design means the black represents uh, the extinction and that the skull represents humans' responsibility and we're, we're, we're part of driving species to extinction. The whale and the, and the dolphin in the forehead, uh, that represents the mind in the sea. That is uh, what we can learn from uh, diversity in the ocean. And of course, the trident is uh, for aggressive and the shepherd's crook is for protection. So aggressive nonviolence. Are there, uh, can you bring us up to speed? I mean, this movement uh, that you founded, you know, 44 years ago has, has now grown to the point where you have what well, you're operating, I think, a dozen boats, right? I mean, you're in 20 countries. Are, are, there, are there sea shepherd vessels that are actively out there interfering with commercial fishing and whaling vessels as we speak? Yeah, we have 12 ships at any given time. There's between 150 to 200 people on board those ships. Uh, two of our vessels right now are working with governments in West Africa to stop poachers in their territorial waters. That's the Bob Barker and the Sam Simon. I have two vessels in the Mediterranean that are confiscating um, illegal nets and fish aggregating devices. One vessel uh, in the Baltic that's protecting dolphins there. Two vessels in the Sea of Cortez that have uh, been protecting the endangered Bakita porpoise, which I'm quite confident would now be extinct if it wasn't for our interventions over the last seven years. Uh, we have another vessel uh, working uh, with uh, to protect Coiba National Park in Colombia or in Panama and Mapello National Park in uh, uh, Colombia. And we have another vessel, the Ocean Warrior, which is working to, uh, uh, to try and intervene against the Chinese fishing operations in the eastern tropical Pacific. Plus, we have our research vessel, our sailing vessel, the Martin Sheen, which actually in November discovered a new species of beaked whale, which uh, I thought was absolutely amazing. I didn't think there was anything left to discover as far as whales are concerned, but we did. Wow. And uh, that's involved in, in ongoing research off uh, in the waters of the West, off the Pacific waters off Mexico. Let me let me ask you something. I want to I want to ask you about conflict in just a second. But you've just talked about something pretty wonderful, something pretty beautiful. The, the discovery of a new species of whale. What does that do to a guy like you? Uh, I mean, I don't know if you need any more motivation. It seems to me like your tank's pretty topped up. But but what does that do? Well, in a world where we're seeing species disappear, uh, it's uh, you know it's amazing that we actually found a new one, which really tells me that there's so much out there that we don't understand, and we and there's many many species we haven't yet discovered, and a lot of species that are going extinct before we can even discover them, and so that's that's important in that respect. Uh, but here's a real problem: uh, life in our ocean is being diminished at an alarming rate. Um, not many people realize, but since 1950, there's been a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton populations in the sea. Phytoplankton provides up to 70% of the oxygen in the air we breathe. All life is dependent upon the existence of phytoplankton. If phytoplankton uh, disappears, so do we. That's why I say all the time that the ocean dies, we die with it. So I think it's the absolute greatest responsibility right now to do everything we can to ensure that diversity and interdependence in the sea is not diminished. We have to learn to live in harmony with all of these other species, or we're simply not going to survive. Hmm. 
I, I, you, I mean, you and I, you, you've probably had this conversation a million times with people about different approaches to whatever. And, and I don't mean to tie two different, very different situations together, but you know, we were talking earlier on the broadcast here of, of, uh, graffiti i'm gonna say it's graffiti art uh on, on a catholic house of worship in saskatoon saskatchewan relating to the residential schools and this splashed red paint has has little hands all over and it reads we were children and it's a very powerful uh bit of graffiti and and we're discussing this and i was talking about how some people are, are getting their uh, you know undies in a bunch you know sort, sort of saying to me like oh it's vandalism like you think vandalism's okay and at the same time i'm sort of thinking is is the power of this message lost on you no i don't i don't think that you could go around vandalizing everything and burning buildings to the ground and you know i i you know obviously we have you know anarchy wouldn't work big picture um but but you also i mean i can i can understand your perspective too where you're like i i guess i could sit here and fight big organizations in the courts and get all tied up and start or you know have conferences and summits and spend a bunch of time talking or we could just go out there and ram that fucking boat that's whaling right now and uh impact some change like today you know what i mean i mean how did you how do you reconcile you know where where advocacy off the water begins how do you justify some of the actions that you take with regards to the so-called civil disobedience how, how does that all work out how do you explain your tactics or your approach well first i'd like to say something about the church i i i'm actually quite amazed that every catholic church and every reservation in the, in the country hasn't been burned to the ground i agree and uh we forget that uh the christian missionaries burned the totem poles and the longhouses on, on the coast of uh, british columbia uh, and not, as well as abducting and kidnapping and killing so many children so there's a lot of anger there that I can certainly understand. But to go back to your question here, uh, Sea Shepherd does not break the law. We operate within the boundaries of the law and the boundaries of practicality. And uh, what we look at is our opponents are criminals, they're poachers. And uh, that's what we're, we're trying to stop. The Japanese whaling fleet was killing whales in violation of, the, um, of international regulations in the Southern Ocean Whales Sanctuary. They were poachers, and that's who we were opposing. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we were able to get away with a lot of these things, because people know what we're doing. We sank half of Iceland's whaling fleet in 1986, shut them down for 17 years. I made myself available to the Icelandic authorities, and uh, they, they, they told me to leave the country. They didn't want to put me on trial. They knew that to put me on trial, to put Iceland on trial. And uh, as of three years ago, Iceland just stopped whaling. So... We're making a lot of progress. From when we began, I would say 95% of commercial whaling operations have been shut down. We were opposing Australia, Chile, South Africa, Spain. All of these countries are no longer killing whales. Uh, now, Norway is uh, uh, Japan and, uh, and Norway and Japan are the only two really whale, whaling countries left, and it's all restricted to the territorial waters. I'm actually quite confident whaling will be gone in five to 10 years. It makes no economic sense. Uh, and people are becoming much more aware. So I think that we've done a, an amazing job, not just Sea Shepherd, but all of the organizations and people that have been opposed to, uh, to the commercial whaling. Yeah, I, I can see. Yeah, I can see the whole thing about whaling. I mean, I just think that although there's such a fascinating debate that, that, that occurs when people talk about. I'm not sure if we even want to get into this, but maybe we should. I know you're not afraid of difficult conversations, but like cultural traditions and people talk about the connection that certain cultures. Um, I mean, you, you look at Inuit culture, 
right? You look at Japanese culture, you look at Norwegian or Scandinavian culture. I mean, like whaling is so huge. I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying that. I mean, I, I think to me, it breaks my heart. I'm a scuba diver. I love the water. I mean, the ocean to me is paradise. But, uh, you know, I, I uh, yeah, boy, that's an interesting debate. Well, actually, as of yesterday, I, I just had a book come out. Uh, this one here, The Death of a Whale, and that's about our campaigns to oppose the Macaw whaling operations in Washington State. Ah. And what we forget about that is that we were invited into that situation by elders of the Macaw Nation who understood that it was not part of their culture to go shoot a whale with a, with a 60 caliber uh, recoilless rifle. Uh, they understood that. So we were working with the elders, and I said all along during that time, if the elders ask us to leave, we will leave. And if uh, they ask us to return, we will return. So we have a respect for Indigenous cultures, and we work with Indigenous cultures. Uh, we continue to do so. Right now, I'm working with the Anamani and the Ka Kayapo to protect uh, uh, dolphins in Amazonia. Uh, and, uh, you know, we actually intercepted the Nina Pina in, in Santa Maria in 92 uh, with the Gitsawatsuatan peoples. And, and that, and I was a medic at the Ameri for the American Indian Movement occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota in 1973. I have a long history of working with Indigenous peoples. We do not oppose the Inuit uh, hunt because it's legal, but the Macaw hunt was illegal. Now, when the Japanese argue it's our cultural right, it's actually not true. The Ainu people are the Aboriginal people of Japan, and Japan forbids them from going whaling, but they say they should go whaling. So it's a pick and choose sort of thing. But, you know, back in the 80s, there was a meeting in Iceland between all the different countries involved with whaling and sealing. And the Canadian Department of Fisheries and Oceans representative there, he said, look, it's very difficult for us to get sympathy for what we're doing, killing whales and seals. So here's the strategy. Let's associate what we're doing with native cultures, with indigenous peoples, and that will provoke that sympathy. So when we're opposing the commercial seal hunt off of Newfoundland and Labrador, where not a single native person is involved, they, the government associates that with the Inuit hunt and then gets that involved. So when people are percept, the perception is you oppose sealing, you're opposing the Inuit. And that was never the case. But that is uh, the strategy of the Canadian Department of Fishery Notion is to make that association. Um, Paul, I see uh, if you're just tuning in live uh, streaming audio on the Mixler audio app, we're talking to Captain Paul Watson, founder of Sea Shepherd. You can uh, check out what they do at seashepherdglobal.org. I'm taking a look at your campaigns and uh, I mean, you've just there's so much going on here uh, as I mean, you've sort of given us a bit of a laundry list, but fighting illegal fishing in in West Africa, partnerships protecting Africa's marine wildlife, Liberia. Uh, I mean, you're, you're you're all over the world. Uh, Mayotte, uh, Timor, Tanzania. I mean, people can check it out again on your website how do you how do you i would imagine being as aware as you are of what's going on probably comes with a pretty heavy emotional burden too in other words i you know you you've got a dozen boats right now you probably wish you had a hundred how do, how do you choose where your teams will set up shop and where you'll allocate your efforts well back in 2012 when japan came after me personally and came after sea shepherd in the u.s as an organization we learned a valuable lesson, and that was you can stop an individual. You can shut down an organization. What you can't do is stop a movement. So we turned Sea Shepherd from an organization into a global movement. We're in 42 countries. They're all separate, independent entities. We all work under the umbrella of Sea Shepherd Global, yeah, which is based in Amsterdam, which doesn't have any money. They just do directions. <laughs> and that, and uh, so we all work together towards that end to run those ships and those campaigns. I personally cannot keep track of the number of campaigns we do. We have wonderful leaders, wonderful directors, captains, officers, crew. And uh, these campaigns are going on organically really all over the place. 
we're now getting invited by governments all around the world. Can you come in and help us stop the poaching operations in our waters? Uh, in Liberia, uh, a couple of years ago, gave us their highest military honor, a medal for our interventions against the poachers that came into their waters. And uh, so, and, and now we're trying to, we're working with Peru and Ecuador and Colombia to intervene against the illegal fishing operations by China in the Eastern Tropical Pacific. Uh, so I never thought back in you know the 70s and 80s I would actually be invited by governments to work with them, but it just shows that the situation pe people are becoming more and more aware of how desperate it is, and that we've actually uh, set up a way or an, a strategy that works. We're now our strategies are being taught in the uh, United States Naval War College, and with the um, with the recommendation that the U.S. Navy should actually do some of the things that we're doing. And, uh, and we're lecturing them. I gave a lecture to the FBI uh, and uh, <laughs> that was funny. One of the FBI agents said, come on, you know, Sea Shepherd's walking a pretty fine line when it comes to the law. And I said, yeah, but does it matter how fine that line is as long as you don't actually cross the line? Yeah. And they couldn't, they couldn't disagree with me. We have never been convicted of a felony. We've never been successfully sued because we understand the limits to what we can do and the boundaries that we have to operate under. We don't carry guns. We carry cameras. And as far as I'm concerned, the camera is the most powerful weapon that's ever been invented. Huh? Yeah, I uh, I have to. I mean, I just I, I remember the first time I ever saw any coverage of Sea Shepherd. And, and the first time I I mean, I, I I'm not I, you know, I don't I don't typically say this in interviews, but like it's just even just talking to you. I'm like, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time to just pick your brain because I was like, there's something about this guy. I mean, it's just people. I, I have no frame of reference of like being on ships like this in the open ocean and what that's like. But but anyone that's even been on a on a 30 foot fishing boat can understand. I mean, a collision at the high seas of these big boats. I mean, these almost tanker size. I mean, this just, I would imagine the adrenaline must just be uh, out of control. I mean, I can't even. Do you remember? Of course you do. But the very first time your very first mission i mean do you, your very first sort of confrontation can can you take us back to it well i think that the uh, the first time i rammed a ship of course was 1979 when i hunted down a pirate whaling vessel this is a completely legal operation uh, it was a ship called the sierra and i knew it was somewhere in the north uh, atlantic uh, operating somewhere between portugal and angola so i set out from boston to find it and my intention was to end his career and 16 days after leaving Boston, I came across it about 200 miles off the coast of Portugal. The waters are very rough, so I couldn't really take any aggressive action there. So I chased it into the Portuguese port of Le Chose. And then I presented the proposition to my crew. I said, look, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to ram that ship. I'm going to end its career today. I can't say you're not going to be hurt, but I can guarantee you one thing. You're all going to jail if you come with me. So you got 10 minutes yeah. to make up your mind. Are you with me? Are you against? Or are you one off? And 10 minutes later, of the 20 people on the crew, 17 of them were on the dock. But fortunately, the two that stayed with me were both engineers. Uh, we started the engine up, pulled out, went across the bay. I gave them a warning blow to knock out their harpoon and then came 360 degrees and slammed at an angle and ripped them open to the water line. And that was the end of their career. Now, we were chased by the uh, Portuguese Navy. We were brought, brought back under arrest. I was presented before the port captain and uh, charged with gross criminal negligence. I said, Captain. It wasn't anything negligent about what we did. We hit that ship exactly where we intended to hit it. It was not negligent. And the captain said, well, here's my problem. I don't know who owns that ship. And until I do, you're free to go. Mm. 
I walked out the door. One of my crew members said, well, yeah, if I knew you were going to get away with it, I would have been there too. I said, well, sometimes you got to do things that you don't know. You're not for sure you're going to get away. With. Uh, you have to do what's right. Yeah. And uh, as it was, there were never any charges. And the, the, the Sierra's uh, career was ended. What would you do? Like, like, what would you do if, if three people on board that vessel were killed? Like how, you know what I mean? I mean, what if you were all of a sudden facing homicide charges? Would you say it was well, still worth it? I was quite confident that they wouldn't be because I understand the physics of it. Uh, we hit the ship in an area where there were no people. And when 700 tons of ship hits at 700 tons of ship, they're about the same size. The volume of the metal absorbs the shock of the impact. It doesn't even knock anybody off their feet. So I was quite confident that it would work and it done. And I've, I've run a number of ships since then. And it's always been the same thing. We never injured anybody, but we have to be very careful to make sure where you hit and uh, the angle on, on where you hit. And uh, also um, the fact is that we are opposing illegal operations. You know, we're not, we're not actually breaking laws, but we all have to be very concerned about injuries. And we're proud of the fact that we've never caused any injuries. Paul, have you, do you find, I mean, in, in the 45 years uh, since you founded Sea Shepherd, have, I mean, you, you talk about maybe five years from now, you can envision a world free of whaling. That would be one great example. You talk about a species of, I think it was dolphin, you said that you believe that, that your team has played a direct role in, in preserving the existence of that species. These are wins, obviously. Um, do you, would, you, would you characterize the, the, the landscape, so to speak? I mean, the industry, your perspective, have things uh, demonstrably or dramatically changed well, things have changed, certainly, and for the better in many ways. But at the same time, uh, diminishment in the sea is a major problem. And uh, that diminishment has limitations uh, And before things begin to crash. You know, at the COP21 conference in Paris in 2015, I said, look, you know, we really have to address the fact that our, our life support system is under threat right now because we're killing the engineers, those species which run and maintain the life support system that provide us with the oxygen that regulate climate and temperature. And that has limitations. We have to learn to live with the understanding of the laws of diversity, the law of interdependence and the law of finite resources. Meaning if you steal the carrying capacity of other species that contributes to diminishment and interdependence. And uh, so we, so that's the problem really in a nutshell is that uh, more and more people and less and less resources. And as I pointed out earlier, 40% diminishment, and you can verify that. There was, an art, there was a publication in America now, Scientific America, that'll back me up on this. 40% uh, of diminishment in phytoplankton populations since 1950. That is probably one of the most serious threats facing our survival, and most people are completely unaware of it. I've got a great question here from Nick, who's who's watching us live right now on YouTube. He's wondering if you have any experience uh, interacting with people, or he says, stopping people from dumping plastics in the ocean. He says, to me, this is just as critical an issue as whaling. Sea Shepherd is very much involved in the plastic issue. Uh, we have uh, our chapters have beach cleanups around the world, taking thousands of tons every year on beaches all around the world. But we also remove things from very remote areas. We took, uh, you know, all the plastic that we could gather on Cocos Keeling Island in the Indian Ocean. We took 40 tons of marine debris off of Cocos Island, off of Costa Rica. Uh, we're removing plastic where we find it at sea. Uh, we cleaned up the beaches in northern uh, Australia with the, uh, in partnership with the Aboriginal communities there to protect the sea turtles. It is a major problem. We're working with Parley for the Oceans, which is an organization dedicated to finding alternatives to single-use plastic and also working on recycling plastic from the sea, although I, uh, and they agree, 
that recycling is not the answer. Uh, we need to find real biodegradable alternatives to plastic. Plastic is really a, a major design error uh, and shouldn't be used. I, I, when I was a boy and living in New Brunswick, you know, you could walk around across the beaches in the early 50s. There was never, there wasn't one piece of plastic anywhere to be found. This has all happened in my lifetime. And it is a major problem. In the 1985, when we began to warn people about plastic pollution, most environmental groups were all, come on, get serious. Get serious and get involved with something like that's, you know, legitimate. I mean, plastic's harmless. Uh, but slowly, slowly, people have become to the understanding that it is a tox toxic substance and it's causing incredible destruction in the sea. Uh, Captain, th this is uh, I I'm noticing behind you, like on the full screen view of you, that you have the the Sea Spiracy. Uh, this is the documentary that that everybody's watching uh, on YouTube right now. Everybody's talking about, and and um, I, I full disclosure, I've not seen it yet. Um, but I was talking about it literally last night. We had a family Zoom call, and and my my one sister in law is just she's just watched it. She's mortified. She says it's going to change. She says Ryan. She knows I love fishing. She knows we love to head out to Prince Rupert. She says it's going to change your whole thoughts on fishing. It's going to blow your mind. It's going to break your heart. What we are doing, what people are doing to the oceans, to fish stocks, to species. And and then I'm seeing reports again, like this one at Vox.com that says, you know, Netflix's Seaspiracy, what it gets wrong, uh, explained by a marine biolog biologist who says that the movie has a says it's a noble cause, but says it it it, it, it plays loose with the facts um, and ignores some peer reviewed studies, et cetera, et cetera. I'm I'm about to hand the mic over to you, Cap, because I want to get your your take on this. The 2009 documentary, The Cove, shattered my heart when it came to to uh, Japanese uh, hunting practices when it comes to dolphins. Uh, is this documentary going to do the same thing to people 12 years later? Well, the marine uh, biologists who work for the seafood industry, the fishing industry, uh, who I call biostitutes, really, they were condemning this film before they even saw it. And I think there, I don't think there's any factual errors in the film. Uh, you know, the one that they pick on is that according to uh, the film says, according to Dr. Boris Worm, uh, by 2048, uh, commercial fisheries will collapse. And they said, well, since then, Boris Worm has revised that and said that that's not true. But if they look at the actual paper, Boris Worm said, it'll be reduced by 88%, not 100%. So does it really matter if it collapses by 2048 or 2078? I, I, I don't see anything wrong with the, with the facts in the film. But here's the thing. This is a brilliant story. And it was presented in the way that films have to be presented, somebody's story. And fortunately, it was on a powerful medium, Netflix. And that's really the key to success. doesn't matter what you say. you got to get people to, to see it. Yeah. And uh, people have seen it. Uh, the fishing industry is saying, well, you know, a billion people depend upon fish for their survival. And that is true. But we're not targeting them. We're talking about industrialized corporate fishing operations. And they are the threat to artisanal and indigenous fishing communities around the world. They're, they're in Africa right now stealing the fish from African nations, and that's why we're there protecting those fisheries for the people in those African nations. Nobody has a problem with going out in your outrigger in your canoe and catching a fish. We have a problem with $100 million super tra trawlers, with, with giant uh, drag trawlers, with 100-mile-long long lines, 100-mile-long drift nets and gill nets. This is a mechanized corporate, a heavy gear, industrialized fishing operations, which are destroying life in the sea. And fishery after fishery is collapsing because of it. And it's also, it's held up in, by the fact that the fishing industry gets about $76 billion in government subsidies from governments around the world. It could not survive on its, 
on its own. Uh, there's simply not enough fish to continue this. And they keep saying, well, there's, this fishery is sustainable. There is no sustainable fishery, commercial fishery anywhere in the world. Hmm. It doesn't exist anymore. Janice is watching us live. She she checks in on uh, on uh, Twitter uh, using our official hashtag Real Talk RJ. She says listening live to this interview with with Captain Watson. Um, she says I'd like to know how a regular Canadian can help end illegal fishing, which contributes to the extinction of ocean species. For somebody that can't get on board, literally uh, a Sea Shepherd vessel for months at a time, what can the average Canadian do, Captain? I think the best thing to do is replace uh, fish and meat products with uh, plant-based uh, substitutes. They're certainly there now. They're certainly much more than they ever have been before. When uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, they didn't even exist. They're, they're, uh, they taste good. They're just as nutritious uh, and much more healthy than the you know, fish, which is contaminated with mercury and other heavy metals and everything. So that's one thing that everybody can do. Don't eat farm-raised salmon, which is an incredibly toxic uh, uh, product and also ecologically quite destructive. And uh, so that's what everybody I think can really do. I, we're not gonna get any uh, answers out of the Canadian Department of Fisheries and Oceans, which I've always said is the single most incompetent bureaucracy in the country. Uh, so, you know, they're in the pocket of the industry. They, they do what the industry wants. I was, uh, I, I had a, this is pointless. I don't even wanna talk to you about this. I was gonna say, I did an interview a while ago. I came back from, this is just, I, this is such a small potatoes story. I got Captain Watson on the line. You know, I got the small potatoes story, but I, I came back from one of our trips to Prince Rupert and I was actually super annoyed. We're out there uh, pulling it. We're, we're fishing for, for cod and for halibut. We would pull up these snapper and you know what happens to snapper when you bring them up quick and, and, and you know, I mean, just quite frankly, to use layperson's terms, their insides basically, it's like what a scuba, what would happen to a scuba diver if they went from the bottom to the top right away. The eyes bulge out of the head, the lungs, but I mean, the fish is done. It's, it's actually, I feel terrible. We felt terrible about it, but we couldn't keep them. And so they're like, well, it's catch and release. So you try to put it on a downrigger and send it back down. But yeah, right. I mean, that's, you know, it's like the most invasive, horrible. I just was sick about it. And so well, they should, they should well, be kept and logged and reported. So we at least we know what the numbers are. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And and quite frankly, uh, just to cut to the chase, I felt brutal about it. And uh, and we came back and I actually tried to sort of turn it into somewhat of a positive. And and and, and at that time, I had a radio gig and, and Minister Wilkinson, you know, federal minister, agreed to come on the show. And we talked about this. And sure, it was a niche conversation. It was a niche focus. But we started talking about bigger things and policies and legislation on fishing and conservation and things like that. And, and we, what we realized is the more of a conversation that we had is how little Canadians actually know about any of it. So I find it pretty interesting when a guy like you that spends a lot of time focusing on this, I mean, this is your life's work, describes a, a federal government department as as incompetent, as perhaps the most incompetent. You grab our attention. Uh, what is it? I mean, aside from being in the pocket of industry, uh, as you allege, you know, what would you say it is that, that I mean, Canadians would be interested to know that this federal body, uh, in your estimation, is not doing what it needs to do to protect our waters? The Canadian Department of Fishing Oceans uh, shut down a lot of the research and also destroyed all of the research files going back, uh, you know, a century, really. They just destroyed them. Uh, I think it was the, uh, the previous conservative government that said that, uh, well, it's, it's cost too much for the taxpayer to maintain these records. So they, 
their answer to destroy them. But really, that research was absolutely necessary. They closed things like the Marine Biological Station in St. Andrews, New Brunswick, places like that. So it's like they're dismissing the science. And the same with uh, uh, salmon farming in, in British Columbia. They weren't listening to the scientists. They were listening to the industry. It's a $3 billion a year industry, and it was threatened by revelations that uh, by uh, people like uh, Alexandra Morton and her research on the transmission of uh, zoonomic transmission of viruses from Atlantic salmon and invasive species to indigenous salmon populations, which has caused so much devastation uh, with indigenous salmon populations. So um, really, uh, I, found, I found that DFO, it, it, it supports whatever the industry wants and isn't really interested in uh, being guided by science. They know, for example, that harp seals are not a threat to the survival of the cod. Brian Tobin, when he's fisheries minister, even said so himself. But that's not what the fishermen want to hear. They want a scapegoat, and therefore the harp seal becomes a scapegoat. You know, if you want more fish, you need more seals. You need more whales. You need more dolphins. You need more seabirds because these species are interdependent with each other, and they are actually the farmers of the ocean. They provide the nutrient base for the phytoplankton, the nutrient base for zooplankton, and therefore, you know, when Jacques Cartier first came to Canada, uh, there was, he described the fishers as being so abundant, you could throw a basket in and pull in a giant fish, I mean, a meter-long codfish out of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. You're lucky to find one for 18 inches now. There were 45 million seals in the North Atlantic in 1500s. And now they've been reduced to less than 10% of the original population. And yet the government blames and the fishermen blame the seals for that uh, diminishment. If you want them to come back, encourage more seals, encourage more seabirds. It sounds, it might sound strange, but when you really look at what, the, what these species contribute, the nutrient base that they contribute, for instance, Every day, one blue whale, just one blue whale, dumps three tons of manure into the ocean. Very rich in nitrogen, very rich in iron, the primary nutrients needed by phytoplankton. Mm. That's why we're having a diminishment in phytoplankton. Birds contribute to this, seals contribute to this, fish contribute to this. Uh, what do we get? We give them oil and plastic. We give them nothing. <laughs> you know, we just take and we do not give. But we're killing those species which do give. And that's where we're really making a very fatal error. You're not, uh, you're, you're not like, I mean, you, you have an, a real optimism to you, though. Do you, do you, do you believe that can species recover? Like, do you, do you, do you have a vision where numbers bounce back and populations rise again and we treat our planet I said, properly? I said at the COP21 conference in Paris, I said, the answer to addressing this is to do nothing. But to do nothing, you have to do something. And that something is leave the ocean alone. Hmm. We, need, we need the ocean to have time to recover from the damage we've done, we've done to it. We need a moratorium on industrialized fishing. We need to stop dumping pollutants and everything. Let it repair itself. That's what we need to do. I don't think, you know, people say, well, that's impractical. No, but it might be our, the key uh, to our survival. I actually, I've always been optimistic and certainly have never been declined to depression and everything because I learned a lesson many years ago. I was a medic during the um, occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota that was organized by the American Indian Movement. And we were surrounded there. We were being shot at. They had wounded 46. They had killed two. And I went to Russell Means, who was the leader of the American Indian Movement. I said, look, we have no hope of winning. The odds against us are overwhelming. Uh, why are we continuing to be here? 
And his answer says, stayed with me. He said, well, we're not concerned about the odds against us. We're not concerned about winning or losing. We're here because this is the right place to do the, be the right thing to do at the right time to do it. Focus on the present. Don't worry about the future because what you do in the present will define what the future is. And that's really all we can do. Our efforts are in the present and hopefully that will contribute to a better future. Captain, we've got, I haven't been reading you all the comments on our live chat. It's hilarious. Like uh, Deborah says, uh, I wouldn't want to play battleship with the captain. Brenda says, yeah, definitely no battleship with this fella. Um, <laughs> but uh, we've also got some questions. Arnold's got some great feedback, says Sea Shepherd is so badass. I don't think we'd agree 100% on everything, but I'm sure glad that they exist. Um, an interesting question here from Sharon. Um Sharon uh, is, is wondering if you have a comment. She doesn't uh, focus uh, too specifically. Maybe she doesn't need to on uh, the, the Micmac uh, fishermen. Uh, the, I mean, uh, essentially the entire community uh, in Nova Scotia back in November, about seven months ago, um, that community declared it won. Right. They, they scooped up a billion dollar seafood firm. Uh, this reporting in The Guardian. Um, these are uh, two First Nations Micmac communities reaching an agreement to buy Clearwater Seafoods. It's a deal worth a billion dollars. I see now the CBC reporting uh, just a, a few days ago that two Nova Scotia First Nations, the same First Nations we're talking about, uh, proposing a moderate uh, elver fishery. These are like small eel type organisms. But, but there's more ownership happening here, economic stimulus and opportunity happening here. Um, but I would imagine that there are many layers to this from which we could approach the story. Sharon's curious to know your thoughts on it. Well, I'm very proud of the fact that I have Micmac heritage. You know, my family's Acadian. And we've been there for 500 years. And there's a lot of marriages going on back then. So, yes, I, I'm 100% supportive of the Micmac uh, community. But also, we've seen that Indigenous communities, especially in British Columbia, have sh shown how you can have you can fish and you can fish in a in an ecologically positive manner uh i think that indigenous communities should be the advisors to the canadian department of fisheries and oceans um this is uh i've i've kept you way past the, the time that we asked you to join us for it's I, I just I just want to thank you so much for for this. I mean, I, we could keep here all day. This is really interesting stuff. Um, I'm curious to know just bigger picture. We, we often like to end interviews on this show, but by asking for a call to action. And I suspect by asking a guy like you for a call to action, this may be have a little more horsepower behind it than usual. But what's something that you'd like all of us to think about as, as we make our way through the day after hearing this? Well, let's not think that governments are going to solve the problem because they're not. All problems are solved through the passion, the courage, and the imagination of individuals or groups of in individuals. Uh, you know, we have a, a climate conference coming up in Glasgow in November. And, you know, I'm just advocating people don't even attend because we've had climate conferences going back to 1979. They've accomplished absolutely nothing other than photo opportunities for politicians. But everybody can be involved at some level by simply using their skills and their abilities to enhancing that to the virtues of passion, courage, and imagination. So it doesn't matter what your approach is, whether it's education, litigation, legislation, or direct intervention, you know, whether you're a member of Extinction Rebellion or you're, or you're working uh, uh, with a more moderate group or you're a teacher, it doesn't matter as long as you contribute to making this world a better place by contributing your skills and your abilities. And I'm seeing more and more of that, especially amongst young people. And, this, and, and that, that's understandable because we now have a generation that really doesn't know what the future is going to be. And, uh, you know, I could look back and say, well, in the 50s and 60s, I had a pretty good idea where we were going. I don't think we can do that now. So this is a, a powerful motivation for young people to be very much involved in, uh, in really uh, 
looking at where their future is and what their role in that future is going to be. Greg snuck in one quick one right at the end, and I got to ask because we haven't really touched in particular. We'll make this our. We're grateful for your time, Captain. Um, in particular, I've been paying attention to stories about salmon hatcheries on the West Coast, um, and he's curious for your thoughts on that. He, he wonders if you think. Greg says, "I think this is Greg says I think they're wrong." Quite frankly, fish hatcheries. I think they lead to overall populations that are much weaker than fish that do not come from hatcheries. We know. That, I mean, there's evidence that farmed fish or these hatcheries are impacting the wild salmon uh, that are sharing the same water obviously uh where do you think that story goes over the next i mean there are cultural implications too. their land ownership implications supercharged political implications industrial implications with regards to industry um where do you see that story going over the next five to ten years i think uh take a look at uh, two places british columbia and alaska alaska mm-hmm. has outlawed fish farms they have a healthy wild salmon populations british columbia hasn't and they have an unhealthy wild salmon population so we should go the way that Alaska has gone, outlaw the fish farms, or at least put them on land, get them out of the ocean. And a lot of these fish farms are trespassing on uh, traditional people's lands. Uh, we don't need them. It's a destructive in- in- industry. It's a toxic industry. Uh, you know, when you buy a uh, farm-raised salmon in, in the market, it is, it's, it's very deceptive. A farm-raised salmon, the flesh of a farm-raised salmon is dirty white. Nobody's going to buy that. How do they get the color? They get dye in the food pellets and dye them while they're still alive. It's artificial. Salmon get that color from feasting on, on zooplankton in, in the in North Pacific. The only way to duplicate that is through chemicals. And so that's really what you're eating is a dyed, uh, chemically intensive, full of antibiotic fish, which is not healthy. Oh, man. Are you, are you, this is none of my business, but are you 100% plant-based diet? Oh, absolutely. And uh, not only that, my ships, everybody on our ships is too. We were vegetarian since 1979, vegan since 1999. Wow. You don't have to be vegan to crew, but you have to be vegan while you're on the crew and you don't have any choice, really. But I've also found that so many people who uh, have sailed with us have said, well, you know, I didn't die. And this is actually quite healthy. So I, I found that the best way of converting people to that understanding is allowing them to have that experience. Plus, you can say you did it before it was cool. You did it before it was trendy, right? Yeah, <laughs> just did it because it made, it made it made intuitively it made perfect sense in a world where we kill 65 billion animals a year. That's the single greatest contributor to greenhouse gases, single greatest uh, contributor to dead zones in the ocean, single greatest contributor to groundwater pollution, plus the trillions of fish we kill. And some 35 percent of all the fish that we kill or take is fed to domestic animals in the form of protein paste. Uh, and so we now live in a world where chickens on factory farms eat more fi- fish than all the puffins and albatrosses in the world put together. And cats eat more fish than all the world seals in the North Atlantic. 2.87 million tons of fish goes just to catfish, uh, to, to cat food. So uh, it's a world out of balance. It's a world that we have to restore if we're going to survive. Captain, just a ton of respect for you and what you do. Really grateful for your time and your, and your perspective here. Let's hold that. Let's, let's give that book one more plug again. So this is just out. This is, you just put this out. Yeah, yesterday, actually. It's called uh, Death of a Whale, and it's about it's actually about the, the, the clash between indigenous cultural whaling and environmentalism, which is a very difficult thing. But I'm very proud of the fact that we were consistent with our, uh, our alliance with the elders in the Macaw Nation when yeah. we were doing that. I don't want to send this message that we're, uh, we're anti 
native, but which a lot of people think. But I felt at the time that it would be racist of us to not intervene against any illegal activity because the whalers happened to be uh, macaw. Uh, there, we were in the macaw uh, bay to oppose Tokyo, Reykjavik, and Oslo not the macaw, they were using them. Not many people realize that uh, the World Council for Whaling, which uh, was set up in Vancouver Island, was established with money from the Japanese and Norwegian whaling uh, companies because uh, they wanted to use, they were using these people as a, a front to, you know, to uh, promote their own whaling operations. So the Japanese and Norwegian approaches, well, if it was okay culturally for, for them to kill whales illegally, then it should be okay for us too. That was their, that was their mm-hmm. argument. Fascinating stuff. Really grateful for this. Uh, Captain Paul Watson, founder of Sea Shepherd, and you can find him online, of course, read more about what they do, including their campaigns at seashepherdglobal.org. Thanks for this, Captain. Thank you. You bet. Wow. You just, that, that, that knocked you back in your seat. <laughs> you saw that? When he was talking about the statistics. I mean, that's amazing. Cats, what is this? Domestic cats eat more fish than the seals, than the seals in the North Atlantic. Uh, chickens on farms are eating more fish than puffins and albatross. Albatrosses? Albatross? Albatrosses. I'm going to say albatross. I feel like it's probably albatrosses. Even though Just it like it's octopuses? Right. Just like it's octopuses. I was literally inspired by your, Elba. By your dive <laughs> into the proper plural. Wow! Captain Paul Watson, I saw that somebody left a comment that just said, uh, I could just sit and listen to that guy tell stories for hours. Mm. Can you imagine? Especially when he's not, he'd be like, tell us the stories you can't tell on the podcast. Those are the stories I always want to hear. Plural is either albatross or albatrosses. I do not like the either game. Either or either? Well, that too. <laughs> Or neither or neither, but I potato I, potato. Yeah, but I, I prefer that the um, I prefer that the uh, uh, I prefer that there is one definitive correct answer. Ryan, we live in the gray. Everybody's a winner. We live in the gray. All, it's all not of, this or that. All of the kids finished first. I <laughs> don't even get me started. I, because I'm only going to get myself in trouble. This is, the, these are one of the areas in life. Why are we talking? This is not appropriate conversation 45 seconds after Captain Paul Watson starting to talk about like kids sports and organized sport and drafting and picking and choosing and ranking and finishing and awarding and participating. And no, but I'm concerned about where that's going. <laughs> I'm extremely concerned about where that's going. You know what I do when I get into situations like this? Mm. I remind you that the team at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge have the best selection of Ram trucks in the province of Alberta. This is the three-time winner of the Motor Trend Truck of the Year. This is the truck that Albertans and Canadians trust to pull their precious boats, trailers, pup tents, fifth wheels, flat decks, toy haulers, and so much more. Ram trucks from the popular 1500 half ton all the way up to that big beautiful dually one ton ram are the trucks that people are going to to make sure that their summer family getaways don't wind up with the four-way hazards flashing on the side of the road you'll find a better selection at sherwood and st albert dodge than you will anywhere else because they share their inventories you can check them out online right now or pop on by to their showrooms and tell them that real talk sent you want to remind you that the team at Friesen Brothers right now is proudly featuring Bee 
BC cherries at all 16 locations across the province of Alberta. It's grilling season, which means that they've got your favorite Alberta proteins, including inspired by our recent conversation with Captain Paul Watson there. Sustainable fish. They clearly label it. What I love about Friesen Brothers, to be honest, it kind of annoys me sometimes, but but I big picture love it. If their fish is not fresh, they're not bringing it in. You're not guaranteed every single day you go in there to have piles and stacks of fish that has maybe been there for six days or they just pulled out of the freezer. It's not how it works. It's either there and fresh or not there. Plus, vegan and vegetarian options clearly labeled, including that beautiful new store in South Edmonton. For more than 65 years, proudly Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. We also want to remind you that you've still got time to sign up all the way through till the end of June at powered.ca for this course, Embracing Allyship and Inclusion. PowerEd is creating these micro courses. You can complete this one. It's estimated in six to eight hours. You can do it in a day if you want, a couple of days. It's not going to take your whole month, but this is a way for organizations that are really looking for a way to start their journey toward building inclusive communities in the workplace. This is a great place to start. Six to eight hours, and to celebrate Pride Month, PowerEd's offering a 10% discount for Real Talk audience members. At powered.ca, use the promo code REALTALK10, the number 10, at checkout to claim your offer at powered.ca. So this is kind of one of those shows where we're just going to roll in hot from one legend to another. This guy, born and raised in Tisdale, Saskatchewan, went on to become a multi-time Canadian Screen Award winner, the creator, the executive producer, the star of the Corner Gas franchise, a face that Canadians recognize from coast to coast to coast. What a thrill to welcome to Real Talk, the great Brent Butt. It's good to see you, my man. Now that's an intro. I thought, That's an introduction right there. Well, because I thought you're probably going to come in and be a little bit understated with your classic delivery, and I thought I wanted the, to be the, the the proper fervor around your rolling debut in hot. On the- I like I like that. You said rolling in hot. That's <laughs> going to be my personal mantra from now on. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. I'm Brent. rolling in hot. <laughs> I like that. TM and then a little asterisk that sends people to our website so they can see where this all began, where it all got started. How, how much of sure, what? Sure, I'm how, a team player. How much of what people see of of, of you? Uh, you know, yeah, sure. In Corner Gas, where they hear from you in the animated series, which, by the way, is season launching coming up on Monday, uh, or even from what they see from you on the stand-up stage. How much of that is is what your buddies get around the campfire on on Saskatchewan summer nights? Well, I mean, I haven't actually lived in Saskatchewan since the 80s, so uh, <laughs> nobody's seeing me around a campfire in Saskatchewan <laughs> these days. Uh, I'm out here in the West Coast. Um, but we did go back. We shot uh, Corner Gas in Saskatchewan. I did grow up in Saskatchewan. Um, but, I, you know, my character on the show is ve- is very like me in real life. I, 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 do, I wasn't sure of my acting capabilities when we went into Corner Gas. So I thought, here's the smart move make this character respond to things exactly the way I would. Yeah. And then that would be the most likely and give him the same name as me. So if somebody says his, the character's name, I'll look, <laughs> this is all savvy thinking on my part. Yeah. Well, it, it paved the way for quarter gas to become uh, certainly an institution in the country. And, uh, and, and we were talking, you've, you've got a big fan here. The technical producer of this show it, it stacks you up among, uh, uh, you know, the all time greats when it comes to Canadian television series, I, I promised the audience I'd get a little bit tacky and I would ask you for numbers yeah. and, and, and we'd ask you to get into it by, by, 
you know, parameters or by, you know, mile markers like revenue or seasons or episodes or whatever you would use. Where does Corner Gas stack up when it comes to all time Canadian series? Um, I'll, I'll put it this way. There's only one time Corner Gas is the only show in the history of recorded television where the number one comedy on Canadian TV was from Canada. It's, it's the only time it's happened. Wow. So our, our finale, our uh, final season of live action is still the highest watched scripted program in Canadian TV history. That's incredible. Yeah. That, that's the only so one you have to, a, that's the only thing you ever have to say to anybody. Yeah. I mean, I particularly, uh, I take great pride in the notion of being the number one comedy because when I was a little kid growing up, you know, in rural Saskatchewan, I had two channels and you didn't see a lot of Canadian shows. And for us, and then as a stand-up going into it, I always heard people say, well, we don't do, we can't do sitcoms in Canada. We don't do them. And so to, to walk away from Corner Gas with it being the, the only time that the number one comedy in Canada was from Canada is uh, something I'll always be very, very proud of. If I, if I do nothing else, I'll uh, I'll sit around with a smile on my puss just because of that. <laughs> why do you think why do you think the Canadians connected with it so? I mean, do you, do you think people just saw did they see themselves in the show? Did they see their small communities in the show? I think so. I mean, I, there's a universality to it. The, the characters are really kind of archetypal. That was the that was the starting point of these characters. You know, everybody knows a cranky old man, a, a fish out of water, somebody, you know, in an environment they're not from. Normally, uh, everybody has that dopey buddy. They're not sure why they're friends with, but they they still love them, you know. These, these characters, people can respond to on a, I think, a primordial level. But then beyond that, these actors that we cast in the role brought so much life and, and there's an intangible chemistry between them. There's one of those things you can, you always hope for, but you can't sit down and just pick. Uh, we we managed to find it. The, these actors brought something to the show, some magic, some sorcery that that uh, you know, as a as a producer and a creator, you just you you pray you find one day. And we found it with with these group, and then and the writers and the crew and everybody. It's such a one of the things that you know I love about TV and film is coming from the world of stand-up where you are solely responsible for everything and you do it in the moment and you live or die by what you say and it happens right now and it's immediate. Um, to go into TV and film, which is such a team sport, it's so collaborative and you get to tap into the talents and contributions of you know hundreds of people every week. Um, I, I really love that. Why was it important for you to shoot in Saskatchewan? I mean, you could, you could have done it from a, a set anywhere. Well, you couldn't, you can't fake that horizon. Mm. You can't fake that, that line. You would have had to just get some uh, plywood and paint blue and then perfect straight line and then yellow underneath. You, you just can't fake it. And also I was aware that, um, you know, Saskatchewan at the time had, had fantastic crews. They, they had an amazing TV and film crew. They had the soundstage, which was uh, for my money, the second best soundstage in the entire country. Um, sadly, they, they decided to make it, uh, I don't even know what it is now. Is anything going on at the soundstage in Regina? Anyway, it was the best facility in the country, basically top or second best facility in the country. So we knew that we could do it. 
Uh, it was a show about Saskatchewan. I, I thought there would be an authenticity to it if we did it there. And it just, it's something I thought I was going to have to fight for. I went in and said to the network, I, I want this to be shot in Saskatchewan. And they were like, yeah, so do we. And I, had, I was ready with all my arguments. I, oh, okay, great. Yeah. Well, then we're on the same page. Yeah. Did, did you give the rest of the country a perspective on Saskatchewan that the the country didn't already have? Or did you just reiterate a bunch of things? I don't know. I mean, I always felt like the show wasn't about Saskatchewan. Yeah. It just happened to take place there. It's like Seinfeld wasn't about New York. Mm. Um, you know, it was. Ju it's just a show about these people getting into these situations. And like I said, there's a universality to it. We 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 would get fan mail from all over the place. We had a guy from Sweden say, this is exactly like the village I grew up in in Sweden. And we had another guy from uh, New York City say, this is exactly like my neighborhood. People people connected with these uh, these characters i had a uh, conversation a while ago with this uh, fellow by the name of uh, dr clark bannock and he's like a university professor and a, i can't remember if he's a sociologist but he, he he traveled across the province of alberta really interesting exercise interviewed like 140 people um about rural resentment and he was talking to them about politics and their perspectives on government and and a whole bunch of different things and, and people can go back in our archives and watch that interview if they want but he there was this moment in the interview where he kind of like he, he, he went, you know, I was like, what, what, you know, what did people tell you in coffee shops or what did you learn about people or this, that and the other? And he goes, well, and, you know, and then he he goes like not all rural people. He goes, but, you know, they were like, you know, the racist comments. And then he goes and I go, really? And he goes, well, well, of course, kind of thing. And I went, well, I don't know, of course, like there was this kind of really interesting interaction there. And, and we didn't sort of stay on it the entire interview, but it was this moment that I remember from that conversation. Did you, when it, when it comes to like issues that are relevant in, in rural communities or in smaller communities, did you ever see Corner Gas as an opportunity to, to in, a, in a comedic way, start to tap into some issues that, that had real substance to, to start conversations in what might have been like a non-threatening way with Canadians? How did you approach that, that activism angle of what we sometimes see in scripted television production? No, we didn't really tackle that at all. For us, it was all about, I mean, it's, it was more escapist television. Mm. It was, I always felt that, you know, you kind of have two routes that you can go in comedy. One is to be the court jester that tackles all the important issues. And the other is to be the court jester that distracts. Mm. And um, both are valid. There's, uh, you know, both are required by the human psyche. We need to focus on things sometimes and we need to escape sometimes. And um, Corner Gas was just really a show about uh, community and about comedy, about having having laughs. And like I said, we didn't make it about, I always said, I, I, I don't want this to be, I want this to be a show that happens to take place in small town Saskatchewan because it's something I never saw growing up. Um, and that was it. I just wanted it to be the backdrop. And, and the, the stories were about the situations. And I, I didn't want us to hang our hat on, well, this is the way we do it in the small town. I didn't want it to, to give it that kind of colloquial, you know, that kind of rural rustic feel. I, I just wanted it to happen to take place there. And kind of counterintuitively, I said, you know, a lot of the most clever, up-to-date resourceful individuals i've i've ever met are from from small rural communities because sure. they they've grown up self-reliant and you know they're on their combines for 11 hours a day with the uh, satellite radio informing them about the world so this notion of um i mean we're all more connected than we we ever were and i think 
less and less we should be making a big deal of our differences. Yeah, it's uh, and and comedy's always played such an interesting role in dissecting. I mean, I mean, and putting things on people's radar and forcing people to grapple with. I mean, I look at like the you know many of the all time greats, like like Richard Pryor, for example, would throw stuff out there. I even think of a post nine eleven. It was comedians that were really the first ones, right? I mean, it was kind of like when late night came back, when David Letterman went back on the air. Um, it, it almost sort of gave America permission or the world permission to take a breath and then start to talk about it. It's like comedians have always played a really important role. And I mean, I just look even where the nation's at right now and, and residential schools. And people, I know I saw you tweeted about it a few days ago, but people are, you know, people are wrestling with this right now. And I think that that comedy, I mean, it, you know, we're not talking slapstick, uh, but I think that comedians have always played a really important role in driving public discourse on on issues. Well, slapstick itself, you know, it shouldn't be discounted in terms right. of that because it was always one of the one of the ways to couch, um, sar- uh, to, to couch cynicism and and couch satire in in something broad that would get a bigger audience. And and it's not until people, uh, you know, you can hide things, you can hide messages in broad comedy. Um, you know, sometimes when people make messages in their comedy, they forget about the comedy part. Um, sometimes it can get a little preachy mm. and the, the, the sweet spot is when, um, you know, you can kind of, you can kind of do both. It's a very tricky thing to do though, but yeah, the best of the best are able to do it. Richard Pryor, like you said, but he was also, you know, he came from, uh, you know, he came from a scenario in a situation where you kind of, it's something that he had to talk about and something that he, he lived comedy at its essence. There has to be some authenticity to it. And, um, you know, if if you're speak if you're speaking from your experiences, that's when comedy is at its best. Yeah, no kidding. You'll be, I mean, you're you'd be on, you know, probably the Mount Rushmore when it comes to, I mean, Canadian television series and, and people that have achieved great success internationally, um, you know, as well as at home. Um, it, there's been really interesting conversations about what the future of Canadian film and television looks like. And, and of course, everything is, it seems to be these days in the context of post pandemic recovery and what that could mean. And, and, and could there be an infusion of investment and could filmmakers be coming North and could this provide opportunities for Canadian talented crews like you've recognized that haven't had as much work as they were accustomed to um, for, for young creators that were, that would be coming up right now and would be very interested in your assessment. Uh, what is What do you think the future of Canadian television, uh, Canadian film looks like? Is it healthy? Is it moving in the right direction? I think so. I mean, compared to the, here, here's the issue. I don't know where uh, television and film production as a business globally is going now. We're in a very, this is a very weird time right now. The The industry has been kind of the same for about 70 years. There was a certain business model and that's the way it went. And, and you could see down the road and predict the future in some regard, in terms of the business anyway. Um, and now we're in a real sense of upheaval right now. You know, broadcast television does not have the impact it used to have. Streaming service has changed everything. Um, technology has allowed people to watch big blockbuster movies from home on a 60 or 70 inch TV with hi-fi surround sound. So everything has changed. And I would be, uh, I'd be talking through my hat if I was to sit here and say, here's what the future holds for the industry. I don't try to predict it. Nobody, you know, you would have to be a smarter person than me to be able to figure that out. But I can tell you this content is always going to be important. Stories 
are, for whatever reason, whatever psychological, biological reason, stories are inherently important to humans. Mm. And I don't know if other species tell stories in their own way or not, but I know humans, it's one of our first things. It's one of the first things that connects us. And it seems to me that, you know, from caveman, you know, sitting around the fire telling about their, their hunt through you know, Shakespeare through the birth of vaudeville through TV and film and books. I mean, stories are just important. So for any young creators out there, just focus on the story, focus on, focus on creating something that is engaging and, uh, and connects with people and however it shakes out industry platform wise, that'll take care of itself. Focus on the content and don't try to write to the market. Don't try to write to the market. That's huge right there. Well, like as if I, well, I, I think it's one of the reasons that Corner Gas was successful is we 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 went into it thinking, well, nobody's going to watch. So let's just make the show that we really <laughs> like because we're going to do these 13 episodes. 11 people will watch it and yeah. we'll walk away. So we there's an authenticity that I think audiences sensed. They can tell when they're being sold and we weren't selling them anything. Uh, imagine how annoying that must have been for you to think that you were off the hook after 13 episodes, but but you still had to go on for a big six season run, a feature film, and then an animated series that rolled out as well. Uh, I mean, so with six Canadian Screen Awards just for the animated version alone in the last three years, I should mention the final season um, starts Monday. That's this coming up July 5th at 9 p.m. Mountain. People can find it on the CTV Comedy Channel. How different is it? Uh, I mean, I would the the animated thing must be provide some really neat opportunities from the creative perspective on on doing it a little bit different. What what were some of the biggest similarities and differences? How did you approach it differently? Well, that really is the the situation is finding that balance of similarity, familiarity, and then doing something different. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the saving graces of the the show was that in the live action we had kind of built in these fantasy sequences where we could pop into somebody's head and see what they were thinking and it allowed us to do some wilder things without fracturing our reality and and so that was kind of a built-in part of the live action show so when we went to animated we just looked at it as well here's a device that already exists but we can take it a little farther we can do things that we were never able to do in live action um, and so we, we've had a lot of fun with that. We've seen a Sasquatch fight a unicorn. We've, we've seen corner gasket transplanted into a post-apocalyptic future. We, we've, we've seen things that we were, we've been able to do things that we could never have done in live action, but, but keep our familiar world the same and give people what they like about these characters in this place. Very cool stuff. You should see our live chat right now. It's uh, Brenda's, uh, she says, it's really too bad. They didn't leave. Uh, corner gas i mean i i guess we're talking ultimately about dog river in particular as a tourist spot she says and open a ruby's cafe which would actually probably get slammed with traffic if you think about it um yeah was that something that i mean you you could you could probably create an entire little hamlet just like <laughs> there would be it would become like that would be one of saskatchewan's hottest tourist spots without a doubt yeah, it's just the type of thing you really have to focus on. And yeah. uh, my attention, you know, has always been telling stories, doing stand up, getting out in the road, doing shows. I, I don't want to kind of have this side hustle where I'm running a 
a tourist destination. No, you just but license yeah, people it. People were always like, well, people always say, why'd you tear down the gas station? I always say, well, it wasn't the gas station. It wasn't the gas it station. Was, it looked like a gas station, yeah. but it was a very wobbly set yeah. that had to, and it's and basically that land that we uh, rented. We didn't own that land. We rented that land where we built the set for the gas station and coffee shop. That was kind of a bog. And every year we would have to go in and kind of jack it up and try and shore the base of it. And it was always very, so it was, it's not the type of thing that could stand. You, you would have had to, if you wanted to do something like that, you'd have to buy that property. You'd have to build uh, an actual building. Yeah. And it's, that's just not where I feel my talents <laughs> lie. Not, what are you doing these days, Brett? While well, I'm building an actual gas station. Yeah. No, I don't know about that. Uh, Craig is watching. He says, Chicago, loves corner gas he says we went to a couple of cubs games when we were down there when people heard i was from canada the first thing they brought up was corner gas is there something going on in chicago well when we, the first time that we were broadcast in the states it's kind of funny because the wgn superstation wgn is uh, based in chicago yeah. and i went down i threw up the first pitch at a cubs game and it was all amazing and fantastic um but it kind of created this weird buzz because Corner gas was seen on WGN Superstation, 70 million homes around the states, but not Chicago because the, of the FCC rules there. They, ha they had WGN. They, that's where it was based. They couldn't show WGN Superstation in Chicago. So I think it created a strange kind of uh, interest in this show. And it's like, well, why, why is the rest of the country seeing it and not us? We, we got a lot of feedback from Chicago. It was really interesting. Right on. Uh, this is like the boring question, but if I don't ask it, and what if there's this major explosive answer, I'd feel like such an absolute idiot. What's next for you? Well, I mean, I'm always going to be doing stand-up. That yeah. was always my first love, my favorite thing to do. And, uh, you know, throughout corner gas's history whenever we were in hiatus in between seasons i would hit the road and go do live shows so that's going to continue i had to cancel a bunch of shows because of mm. the pandemic but a lot of those are being booked again i have a run in uh, ontario so you can look for that uh you can just go to my website brentbutt.com the live dates are there but i i you know i'm going to continue to tell stories and one of the things that i one of the things i've always wanted to do was write a novel i had an idea for a novel um and i thought you know if if you're in the middle of a pandemic and you don't write your novel, when, when are you going to, if mm. you're shut in the house for a year. So I sat down and I wrote, I wrote my first novel and it's being read now by agents and publishers to see if, uh, see if they think it stinks or not. But the feedback, oh. early feedback has been really good. So I'm hoping to get uh, a novel published. That's very cool. I'm a, uh... I'm going to be one of those people that looks back and like, what did I do? I mean, I guess starting this up, but other than that, like, what did I do during a pandemic? And I feel like all of the things that I was going to do, like organize the storage room in the basement and like purge my closet of all the clothes that don't fit and match up all the mismatched socks, like literally none of it got done. Zero. But that's all right. You know, you got to do what you need to do. And also for me, writing this book was really, it's not like I was like, oh, well, I guess I got to do this. This was something I look forward to doing every day. It's something I had looked forward to doing for a long time. Wondered if I had the ability to do it because writing scripts is very different from writing long form prose. And I didn't know if I would be able to do it. So I got up early every day looking forward to diving back into the story. And I would just sit down and bang out, you know, any 1,200 to 2,000 words a day um, and, and just really enjoyed the process. So for me, it wasn't like something I, it wasn't like reorganizing the sock drawer or something you kind of hate, hate the notion of doing. 
I, I looked forward to it and I really enjoyed the process and I want to do it again. I'm, I'm kind of outlining what would be my next novel. Yeah. Very cool stuff. You haven't podcasted since January of 2019. Have you, have you given up no. on it? You all, you all done with that or what? Uh, well, it made it difficult. I found it really difficult to schedule. Like my podcast, like like your own, has um, you know it's guest based. I have a guest in. We sit down and talk. We did thirteen episodes of it, but it was really difficult to to organize people's schedules. And then when the pandemic hit, we weren't able to do it in person. And I'm not a super technical savvy guy, so it just kind of fell by the wayside. Plus, when you're producing a network television show, it really takes a lot of your attention. And so, you know, I'm, I, I shot a video on my YouTube channel about the, the, the stupidity of starting a YouTube channel and a podcast while producing a network television show, because there's only so many hours in a day and I only have so much energy. Um, and so it kind of fell by the wayside, but I, I, I do like the idea of doing more episodes of the butt pod. Um, and, you know, people can go check out early episodes and I'd like to start doing some more. Brent Butt is the creator, executive producer, star, of course, of the Corner Gas franchise, in addition to all of his other work and soon to be published novelist. Corner Gas animated is CTV Comedy Channel's most watched original series. As mentioned, six Canadian Screen Awards in the last three years. The final season rolls Monday July 5th at 9 p.m. Mountain, 11 Eastern on CTV Comedy Channel. Brent Butt, it's been amazing having you on the show. Thanks for taking time to talk to us. Oh, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed our chat. You bet. Real talkers, if you know somebody that would love to hear Brent Butt here on your favorite podcast on Real Talk. Make sure you share it. If you loved what you just heard, smash that like button. And, of course, a reminder that uh, producer Sarah Hoyles, every day from our new Twitter account at Real Talk RJ is pushing out clips, some of the highlights from all of our interviews, as well as links to the full interviews themselves on our YouTube channel. So you can find it. You can find us on, of course, anywhere you download your podcast. You can find us on YouTube. And of course, you can stream live on the Mixler audio app. What's shaking? I just see you giggling through the plexiglass. What's going on? Well, I felt that, you know, earlier on the show, you were really, you know, you were you were feeling agitated agitated distraught you you weren't sure two buttons or three on yeah, the, on on the, the shirt. shirt yeah well brent butt didn't make fun of me so i thought you know that what? was a start oh you pulled <laughs> you kept this off my radar the entire time i just started it i took some screenshots so there's some reference okay. so people can look at the tube option and okay. the three option yeah. So this is what important stuff is happening. Well, hang on a on second. But I, I feel like there's it's lacking context. How much should I button? It should be how much should I unbutton? Oh, but if you button it, right? Oh, because okay. if it, how much should I button? Two buttons is like you're getting the whole meal deal. <laughs> Too late I now. The I, the poll is up and and I running. Saw, I saw a guy. I, I feel like I love the initiative. I feel I feel like there's it requires more context. So you're saying, hang on, what's the two button? Is the two button undone or more done up? Oh, boy. Right? I felt that the... Oh, boy. Oh, boy. This poll is, I mean... Flawed. But it is, I mean, you if know, I'm you, unscientific. I, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling this poll down if I'm you. No, I'm just joking. We need more clarification. I'm just grateful that I actually, that I, uh, you know, trimmed the... I'm just grateful that I did the proper manscaping. 
I'm grateful that it's properly trimmed, not spilling out. That's a whole different. I, I. That's a different animal. Like I like, will disagree. If, if I wanted to right now, I. Whoa, can, Nelly. Right. Oh, you would like to have you would you you'd, you'd be more of a preference of the like the shirt that's like, what's up, everybody? This guy on exactly. the patio. Exactly. Precise. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You kind of okay. This um, is. Uh, you know what's his ticket? We big mustache. Um, Lanny McDonald. <laughs> Freddie Mercury. Ooh. David Crosby. No, um, Magnum P.I. Oh, Tom Selleck. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I just, I, I feel like, guys, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, don't but worry about here's it. the thing. Like, if I'm walking out of the house, this is so fucked. Like, this is like 30 seconds after we just had Brent Butt on the show. We're not talking about, hey, where does Brent, like, is Brent Butt really on the Mount Rushmore of Canadian content? You know, these types of, no, we're talking about Tom Selleck's chest hair within 30 seconds of the interview, which is why people subscribe to Real Talk. That's why they're, yeah, sure, we take on issues of the day and have uncomfortable conversations and impact change in our communities. But... You know, but if I were to leave the house dressed in such a way, and by the way, not to mention, like, I would require a red Ferrari Testarossa as well, which would be perhaps a tough sell right now within the family, (laughs) trying to just sneak that into the family budget. What's this $6,500 a month? Mm. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't hear you over the roar of my rear mounted engine. Okay. Um, But if I were to walk out in the short shorts, Mm-hmm. And the and, and the shirt, uh, uh, you know, undone to a great and and the, the hair and and my wife were to say, hey babe, just sort of what's the what's going on here? And I were to say, you know, Tom Selleck I, or Burt Reynolds, as Burt Nick Reynolds. mentions on the live chat. Yeah, how did short shorts become part of this outfit? Well, because. Tom Selleck. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what if, if not short shorts, it, it's I stash, think... short shorts, chest hair. I can do without the stash. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm getting, so now we're getting I'm getting picky. nitpicky. Okay. I'm now sorry. we're getting picky. So you want the the overgrown, out spilling out of uh, above the top button chest hair, but clean shaven face, please. No, there can be some stubble. Okay. Well, there can be some. Yeah. See, I mean, times have changed, right? <laughs> Although I'm noticing more and more fellas are making their way back to the mo, yeah. to the mustache. Yeah, like, mustache. But not are... ironically. Or maybe it is ironic, but like I've I've got a buddy. Uh, who wears a mustache full time and looks debonair? Like he, mm. I don't even want to say his name because he'll never. I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm going to deny him this compliment. He probably thinks I'm talking about him. You know, he's so vain. He probably thinks this song is it's about, about him. him. Yeah. Um, but it is. Um, but he literally he is he is pulling off a Clark Gable look and very well. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, I personally, as a close friend of his, would be devastated were he to shave his mustache because it looks great. You know, my dad's always carried a mustache. And really? it's like, oh, it, it's just like it's him. Some guys just carry it. And then other guys, the other community of, of guys wearing mustaches are like, this is for Movember to raise money for prostate cancer. I'm growing it because it looks so horrible that people are going to give me $100 to promise to shave it off at the end of the month. So there's kind of the two camps. There's the guys that can pull it off and the guys that cannot. So for you, do you can you not do a mustache because that's your dad's thing? No, I can, I can, I can pull off a pretty spectacular mo if i if i if i so choose it's just not my thing 
Fair enough. Yeah, fair it's enough. just not my thing. I've been rocking the uh, five o'clock shadow for about fifteen years now, and it's although people always people now are kind of like, gosh, when they see me, they haven't seen me for a while. They're gosh, they're studying my face, like it's like they're looking for like flaws in something, like they're like buying granite for their new counter, and they just want to see if there's, like, gosh, there's a lot of gray in there. There's just a lot of gray in there, so I'm having to really take it tighter and tighter and tighter to to maintain the the perception or the presentation of youthful exuberance. You know what I'm saying? You remember what we do in situations like this? We remind people that the team at Grand Dog Essentials uh, is delivering quality raw food weekly, door to door. From their facility where their team of nutritionists are putting this stuff together. You know every single ingredient. There's no weird additives like Captain Paul Watson was talking about. Quality raw food is the game at Grand Dog Essentials. And depending on your delivery schedule, when do you get it for Ranger? Every two weeks or something like that? Uh, I get the big old box. You do once a month? I get once a month and it's coming on Wednesday. But it's like, it's customized. You know when it's coming every single day. You Same as us. There's the delivery schedule. You set it with, I mean, the delivery days. And you let them know what works. Calgary, Edmonton, Red Deer area, Central Alberta. 10% off your first order if you use the promo code REALTALK. But but give them a call or send them an email if you want to talk to them specifics. Like, ah, my dog dog has kind of like these uh, weird kind of guts when we're trying to figure it out their team has solved problems for us and these are family members we're talking about moses and monroe and ranger sarah's pup again granddog.ca is where you'll find grand dog essentials quality raw food also want to remind you that campers village has their sale going on right now this is a great one at campers-village.com their summer sale as you can see up to 40 percent off on a ton of different outdoor gear it runs all the way through till july 11th but that doesn't mean they're not going to sell out. So if you're looking for icebreaker, pure merino wool, or if you're looking for mountain hardware, I have so much of their gear for my backcountry stuff. It lasts forever. The Yeti coolers that everybody, I mean, these Yeti coolers, don't even get me started. Patagonia, North Face, Smart Wool, and so much more on sale right now at campers-village.com. Most orders over 49 bucks shipped for free across the country. Of course, if you're in Edmonton, two stores to check out. There's one in Calgary as well. Campers Village, family owned. And a big shout out to the team at Park Power. I've told you, the promo code RealTalkRJ, you know, is presented by Park Power. They've got some great tips on their social media right now. I've been telling you about their Instagram for a long time. Sam will show you this one. Check this out. What to do in case of a power emergency. They posted this just yesterday. You can find them on Twitter, Instagram, all the social media channels. What you need to know about these extreme conditions, the heat we're experiencing right now, and the implications of things like rolling blackouts. Park Power is big on the education side. You can learn more at parkpower.ca, and of course, that's where you'll find uh, an opportunity to save 70 bucks off your first bill with the promo code 2021-REALTALK at parkpower.ca. Uh, early returns on the poll. I mean, are, what, 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 what are no, the no doubt thousands of people saying that are going to be chime, dropping everything to chime in on this important conversation? Where are we at with the poll? We, we've got 28 votes. Yeah. And right now it's uh, two buttons. So higher up. Oh, so so have it higher up. OK. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I do I do acknowledge that the, the poll is flawed and I should have said two buttons undone 
or three buttons undone. Yeah, well, I mean, this is why it's beneficial for people to be listening to or watching the show and participating along with social media. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I oftentimes will say to people, I'll tweet something like a one sentence on something and someone will say, that's all you're going to say about it? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, aside from that and the 45 minutes that we just talked about it Tune on the show. To real Tune in Tune in, subscribe, hit like, <laughs> leave us a review and make sure you tell your friends. Real Talk, Ryan Jesperson. Um, we didn't, uh, I wanted to, and again, we pride ourselves on uh, swerving back and forth between the frivolous and the serious. And, uh, and I was curious to pick the audience brain. I know we're going to sign off and, uh, tomorrow we should mention tomorrow will be our final show for the week. Uh, the team is going to take, uh, we observe stats here at real talk. We're going to take July 1st off. And as a team, we're going to take the day off July 2nd, uh, to give ourselves and our families a nice long weekend. We'll be back at it live Monday, July 5th. Um, but, but in the meantime, um, Heading into tomorrow, I, I was curious um, to, to get a sense of where the audience is at, and this is me soliciting your thoughts by way of uh, email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Also tweets, and, and, and to a certain degree on our live chat now, but, but when it comes to what we're seeing, I mean, I thought it was interesting, Captain Paul Watson saying he's surprised that every... I mean, this is going to be an inflammation. People are going to call this, you know, people criticize the show for even talking about this. I'll make some very clear statements now just to remove all doubt about how we feel about things like the criminal code and arson and 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 quite frankly, endangering people's lives. Um, You know, uh, Paul saying that he's surprised that every Catholic church, uh, most especially on reservations, uh, cross County, surprised they've not all been burned down. We are seeing Catholic churches. Uh, vandalized. We're seeing graffiti art. Uh, in my case, uh, or in my understanding, some of these cases are more egregious than others. I do think there's a difference between um, painting a door versus burning a church down. I'm also not going to judge uh, residential school survivors. I'll leave that to the criminal code and police officers and, and the whole nine yards, and I'm going to kind of stay out of that. Um, but I will say, and I will stand by the comment, that I sure don't blame residential school survivors for having visceral and very strong feelings about the representation of churches, most especially Catholic churches, the crucifix, the cross, rosary beads, the clergy, the callers, the nuns' habits, and everything else. I would think when you when it when it comes to talking about triggers and trauma, that symbolism. I don't think unless you attended and survived a residential school or in a position to really understand that. But again, um, you know, the RCMP are going to be investigating these. I mean, these are these are buildings. This is person. This is property. Uh, that's being burned down. How are you kind of, I mean, I understand it's a loaded question and, and I'm curious to hear from our audience on this. I want to pick both of your brains, um, h- how you're landing on this and, and, and where your thoughts are at. We're, we're seeing, it seems almost every day, another church in Canada, another Catholic church targeted with arson in particular. Yeah. Um, I, I'm right there with you. I, to be, to be boring. Uh, I agree with you. I, I, I don't condone arson (laughs) and I don't condone vandalism I don't agree with it um but I would it's deeper than that like society can't say a civilized law-abiding society cannot say um okay like it's open season like we're not gonna we're not gonna investigate arsons it's understandable these people are upset it's understandable uh that's not how it goes so there will be investigations Arson investigators are pretty good. Um, I mean, there, it could get to the point where there are arrests and people are charged. I, I kind of don't think that's the point. That's not the point. The bigger point, it's, it's like I said earlier, and Sam, I don't know where you land on this, but I've, I've been, you know, with regards to that image, when I keep talking about it, I should just show it, but, but this image 
of of uh, you know this this uh, Catholic uh, house of worship in Saskatchewan that had this painting, this paint on the door, this graffiti on the door. I mean, it is an extremely and very powerful image. You know, red paint splashed across. It reads, "We were children," and it has these little handprints on it. I actually think, um, and I think that this word can may raise some eyebrows, but I, I actually think it's beautiful. It's haunting. It's it's so powerful. Um, I actually thought that personally, and people may roll their eyes, and people will roll their eyes, but I actually thought it would have been amazing for the Catholic community in, in Saskatoon to actually leave that up. Um, I, I I actually think that it would be an amazing act of reconciliation. I don't know, maybe not forever, um, but I think that there could have been some sort of opportunity there for some sort of an interaction with First Nations communities and religious leaders. I think that Canadians are, are craving more of that. I think mm-hmm. Canadians are craving like a meet in the middle. Like, I don't know how you were. I mean, I understand that this is really sort of loaded type stuff, but, you know, I saw yesterday someone, you know, my, my Twitter mentions have been a bit of a hot mess lately, and I, I try to get to as many as I can, but someone's going, well, you know, this is, you know, someone told me that, you know, they're trying to blame all this on Pierre Elliott Trudeau because he was prime minister when this was happening and the white papers and everything. And then someone else said, well, well, so was Brian Mulroney. Brian Mulroney was also prime minister and, and, and so was a virtually every Canadian prime minister in history. And someone says, well, well, what about conservatives? Conservatives don't care about this. And then someone else says, well, Stephen Harper apologized. And why doesn't he get points for apologizing? And I'm sitting there going, why are we turning this into like conservatives versus liberals? Like, are we, do, we, do we really lack that basic of an understanding of the fact that essentially, and, and now someone's going to talk about white guilt and my critics will come at me like, we are all culpable. Like, this is something mm-hmm. that we we have. I mean, what about Fatima Syed earlier today talking? I mean, she's been here for 10 years, an immigrant from Pakistan, talking about how she feels like she has to take a certain sense of responsibility here. It's a big loaded question. I mean, how are you processing it, Sam, this image that you see, that graffiti on that church? You know, I, um, I I scribble down way fewer notes now that I'm not you know pulling clips after the show and that kind of thing. But I, I wrote down one quote from Fatima Sayed, and and it says, "It's because I love this country that I'm not celebrating," and, mm. and that just really hit me in the heart. And so when I think about you know churches being torched, and I think about red paint on statues and toppled that kind of stuff, like. In my head, I actually think the paint sends a clearer message. You can write things with paint. You can put messages in paint. You can you can leave it up. You can photograph it. You can take the statues down and display them in context in a museum still covered in paint. So I think that, you know, situations like this give us some very clear moments to have touch points where we learn from our history. These photos need to be in textbooks. Um, these photos need to be in museums. These photos should be displayed at the church if they, you know, if they take the graffiti off. I think that that's, yeah. you know, that would be a more powerful act of reconciliation than, than a church burning down and being rebuilt and forgotten about. I, and, I, and I understand the, what I don't understand, actually. I can't possibly understand, but the, but the fury and the trauma and, and what people are, I mean, how people are having a, I mean, there's, it, it's like this, I don't know. I don't know how to put it. I mean, I feel like these, these, the power of these children is, I mean, the, the nation is feeling it. Like there's, there have been these editorial cartoons. The editorial cartoonists in my mind are some of the most skilled storytellers in 
human history. I mean, it goes it goes back to probably writing on, you know, cave walls and these types of things. But the ability to take an image and have one image just say so much. Um, but I've seen these editorial cartoons of, of like young indigenous children and they're saying they finally found us or yeah. they finally hear us or or, you know, they you know, they will remember these things where you're going. And I feel like the nation is just in and and I know that there's pushback. And unfortunately, um, you know, we're, we're having a lot of, I think, sober and and an important and meaningful conversation around Canada Day. And then, of course, you've got some of the usual suspects um, that are really pushing back prominently across Canada right now and and tagging. Uh, groups, uh, including indigenous groups and, and more progressive politicians, you know, with the receipts of their fireworks purchase to show like we're buying more. We got more fireworks this July 1st than we've ever had before. And like, you know, these types of things. And, and I think that that stuff's unfortunate. I think it's unfortunate that a lot of this is turning into stupid, it devolved partisan finger pointing. Um, that's not the thing. I mean, if you, you could quite rightfully say that conservative governments could have and should have done more. You could quite rightfully say that the current liberal government could have and should have and needs to do more. Um, you would quite rightfully point out that this will be an election issue and Canadians will demand meaningful promises uh, and action from political parties that want to be taken seriously. I don't think it doesn't matter to me. We should be having a conversation with someone that's never voted, somebody that's voted green, somebody that's, you know, worked on a conservative campaign, the federal NDs, the liberals and everybody else. And, 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 and I feel like I would hope um, and maybe this is my Pollyanna type view on it, but I would hope that we could all have a conversation where we say, you know, people roll their eyes that we're all in this together. Hmm. But like this is a national issue of national concern to every single or should be to every single person in the country. And I think that these churches and and I sure, you know, these these arsons, uh, but also I think this graffiti art in particular is sending a, a very strong message. Am I able to share my screen? Yeah, I think Sam has it set up so you can. I just want to show this. This is uh, one of the political uh, art that I was looking at. Uh, it says there's a church, and then underground there's... Hundreds. The numerous, like yeah. just... What are those, skulls? I'm trying yeah. For people listening on the podcast, yeah. so this is... Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a a view with like a, the top quarter of the screen is above ground with the church, and then the three quarters below is is horrific, isn't it? And then there's a there's a sign outside the church saying "Love thy neighbor." Yeah, and that to me was the most powerful. Um, but it's really interesting because I think it's a it's an exploration of what we find important. So, like this structure, I mean, we keep talking about buildings and statues, and who are those relics of, and who are those significant to? They are significant to a certain group of people. Um, maybe the majority or the white population. And Fatima on our live chat made a really good point. We're talking about buildings when there are people where we are situated in Edmonton getting shot at because they have a hijab on. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's about like, what do we deem as important? What, like we are valuing structures, um, over life yeah and i mean i i mean yes yes 
I mean, yes, but? well, not but. I mean, I don't know, if, you know, valuing structures over life. I mean, it's the same sort of a thing. I mean, you, you can't just go burn buildings down. You can't just go no. burn burn churches down. You can't destroy people's personal property. I get it. But also, like, acts of civil disobedience occurred. This is not a green light on arson. It's not justification no. for it. But, I mean, Paul Watson even coming on today goes, they burned the totem poles. Yeah. Like, I, that, that hit me right between the eyes. I'd never heard that, but of course they did. <laughs> I'd never heard that either. I mean, you know. Um, so that, that to me, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I'd never heard it in the context of, of, in, in you know, in the context of protest now. So and I don't believe in like, you did it. So I get to do it. Like, no, I don't, I don't not, believe we're in, not eye for eye. Yeah. But I also think like it's paint. It will come off. It's not spray paint. It's just, it's paint. And it, if you, it'll come off. And if you think, uh, yeah. And that was the thing. And I almost feel like these are some of the conversations where like, I'm like, you know what? I'm not even having this conversation. Mm. This is so ridiculous. I'm not even having this conversation. And then here we are having the conversation because I think it's important to talk it out sometimes. But yes, if you're equating like, like somebody paints because more than 1300 bodies have, have been uh, documented in unmarked graves over the past number of weeks in Canada and the nation is in mourning and flags are at half staff across the country right now. And there is a major tectonic shift in national attitude. Uh, the nation is grieving collectively. I mean, this like I'm trying to paint. A, if, if you don't quite get what's going on right now, look all around you anywhere and you see what's happening. And then if your response is to say, well, I guess vandal, I guess, according to Ryan Jesperson, vandalism's OK. Like, are you th- like, are you that simple? Are you that simple that in the context of all of this, what you pull from all of this is that that's vandalism and now someone's going to have to go get turpentine and someone's going to have to get paint room and scrub and someone's going to have to take an hour to... Sc- like, first of all, and I don't take this for granted anymore because I know it's more difficult for some people than we realize, but the ability to read the room is a highly underrated ability uh, and and number two, we should all, I mean, I think that these moments, and as we hear about, you know, these these acts of defiance, these acts of civil disobedience, these acts of direct action, and as these stories continue, it will demand that Canadians continue to pay attention to something that we've neglected for far too long, for far too long. The team at Local Waste presents Trash Talk. We want to give you a heads up that Trash Talk is coming up early. As a matter of fact, tomorrow as we wrap up our broadcast week at the end of Wednesday's show, you can send in your gripes, your rants to talk at ryanjesperson.com. The quicker, the punchier, the better. We'd love to get to several tomorrow. The team at Local Waste has integrity and no BS as core values. That's why they love to take a look at the current contract you're in with whoever your waste management provider is. They'll tell you not only how they can do better, but they'll also commit their resources to getting you out of a bad contract. That's right. That's how they roll at Local Waste. You can learn more at localwaste.ca. Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, that's Nemeo, Palisades, Westmount, Newcastle, Baseline Road, and Y Gardens want you to know that two cheeseburgers right now up for grabs for five bucks. These are those famous DQ burgers. You want to make them doubles? Go ahead. Two double cheeseburgers, seven bucks at Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. I was hearing rumors about new Blizzard flavors. Did I hear about a Kit Kat? Well, I don't know about a Kit Kat, and I have not checked with this. This is actually totally irresponsible what I'm doing right now because I've not yet checked with the teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. However, I have it on good authority that they have Girl Guide cookie flavor blizzards now. 
Have you, I, if, if, if you heard this? Everyone heard this? Oh, oh yes, these I mean, exist. This, this is like, this is I, this is news to me. And so I'm thinking that on one of these 35 degrees Celsius days, for our friends tuning in uh, stateside, we're talking like 105 or over 100 anyway. What better place to visit than Dairy Queen? Tomorrow's show is going to be a good one. Uh, as mentioned, Sarah's got a great lineup in store. We're going to be, uh, we're, we're going to get back. I mean, this talk about death doulas. Remember this? We got into it. We've tracked one down. It's going to be an amazing conversation. What an interesting profession. It's more of a calling than anything else. That's just part of the show. Plus more to come. We'll talk to you then. Make it a great day.